בשם השם נעשה ונצליח. שיעור תורה, good to be back, ברוך השם, we did a show here a few weeks ago, and ברוך השם, it's been very, very successful, a lot of people have told me it's one of the better shiurs. So, the good news is, it has nothing to do with me. All has to do with the siyat nishmaya. Hashem gives me certain words to say, based on the crowd. If the crowd has merit, then Hashem gives me good words to say. If the crowd doesn't have merit, then chash v'shalom, I could sound like a fool. So, Baruch Hashem, the crowd here has merit every time. I'm in Miami already for the last couple of years, Baruch Hashem, together. And uh, today, Baruch Hashem, I know with the amount of uh, tests that we had to overcome just to get here today, I know it's going to be a good year, Baruch Hashem. So, uh, before I forget, let's do the uh, Refua Shlema. This uh, show also go to Refua Shlema of Michel Koto, Amparo Balufe, Ruven Joseph Ben Rivka, Sara Lea Batsara, Gladys Nunez, Edil Magoreo, Josefina Matos, Esperanza Avila, Raquel Sandler, and Monty Sandler, Eduardes Renzoli, Yeshua Mikael Ben Hadassa, David Gamliel Ben Hadassa, Nancy. Duesa? Duesa? Uh, Patricia uh, Valmana, Sonia Suarez, Nicole Valmana, Augusti Hernandez, Jorge Hernandez, Isabel Betancovet? Betancur. I wasn't even close. Liliana Ante Bonilla, uh, Gilberto Meneses, Jacqueline Rojas, Roger Prado. Olga Hernandez, Jocelyn Morejon, uh, David Ben Nasria, Doris Bajora, Oshri, Bat, Oshri Ben Doris, Levana Batsara, Sarah Bat Levana, and all of Am Israel, Be'ezrat Hashem, will have Refuat Nefesh and Refuat Aguf. The good news is with this list is that I see that the old names, Baruch Hashem, almost half of them are gone. So it's good, everybody got Refuat Shlomo. I've been doing Refuat Shlomo for them for over a year already. But now we have a new list. Unfortunately, we have another half of the list of new names, so Bezat Hashem, they're going to have also Refuash Lema. It's, uh, the greatest thing you can do for someone is contribute Torah for their name. You know, when people make donations they, uh, or they do any type of uh, event, they usually want to do it for Refuash uh, Lema or Ilui Nishmat. Uh, to raise the soul of, uh, of someone that's passed on. And uh, it's interesting is that in today's generation, unfortunately, we have a lot of ignorance. So sometimes you're going to see events that are against Hashem, but they're trying to raise the soul at the same time. So they're going to have, like for example, there was one time a uh, soccer match on Shabbat. They said, we are going to win this match for the benefit, for Ilui Nishmat, of some player that died on Shabbat. Uh, we're going to have this event that's, you know, a party with uh, all types of things that are against what Hashem dictated for the merit of this person. And the reality of it is that if anyone was able to hear this Neshama in Shemaim, Listen, please, please, do me, don't do me any favors, no Ilu Nishmat, no nothing. You're making my, my situation worse. So the greatest thing you can do for somebody is to bring him the most pure thing in the world, which is the Torah, the purpose of creation. Now, 
Last night's Shiur, Baruch Hashem, we got a lot of good feedback out of it from the crowd that attended. I don't know if we published it yet uh, online or not, but uh, Baruch Hashem, we have the um, Facebook Live and uh, YouTube and also uh, our website, bezatashem.org. But there's also something I'd like to tell everyone about. Anyone that is passionate about Kiruv has to go to a website called torahbank.com. Torahbank.com is a new innovative website and it's mamash 100% siyat dishmaya of how they came up with this idea and actually were able to implement it without being a uh, multi-billion dollar company. This uh, group of tzaddikim came together and they uh, decided that they want to help us do kiruv. But not only by helping us by publishing the, the lectures on Facebook and all these different places, but actually by encouraging people to actually do Kiruv. Now, how do you encourage somebody to do something in life? One way is you pay them. Now, what if you don't have any money? You have to make them passionate. How do you make somebody passionate? By showing them there's results, there's an outcome. Even the greatest salesman in the world, if he eventually finds out that what he's selling is garbage, he's going to lose all of his passion, even if he's making a lot of money, as long as he's a normal person. If he's a criminal, he's a criminal. But if he's a normal person... And he finds out that what he's selling is garbage. He's not going to want to sell it anymore. But if what he's selling is the greatest thing in the world, he's going to want to sell it. If he sees that this product actually has results, even more so. But how do you show this guy sale? How do you guys show this guy uh, results? Usually when it's in business, it's money. Now in the Torah world, usually it's when you see actually people do tshuva. You see, oh, listen, this guy was a Michal Shabbat. Now he's keeping Shabbat. It's great results. This guy is a, uh, was uh, not wearing a tzitzit. Now he's wearing a tzitzit. Bo Hashem. This guy was not eating kosher. Now he's eating kosher. Bo Hashem. The problem is that from point A to point B can take a while. To go from Mechalev Shabbat to Shomer Shabbat can take a while. To go from eating taref to eating kasher can take a while. So how do you keep the guy that's doing kiruv, that's sending lectures to his friends, motivated by showing them that actually people are watching. And that's what Torah Bank did. Torah Bank created a system that's similar to multi-level marketing, where when you actually go to their website and you sign up and you create a profile, they have the lectures of myself, Rav Mizrahi, and Rav Alona Nava. And you're able to take our lectures, take the link, and send it to whoever you want. And anyone that watched it is actually going to show up on your profile. Oh, you sent it to Steve. Steve watched it for 16 minutes. Joe watched it for 45 minutes. Menachem watched it for 2 hours and 20 minutes. So on and so forth. Watched it for 5 hours. And you start seeing how much Torah you personally are bringing to the world. So when you show up to Shamayim, it's not going to be a surprise. You understand? So this is something that's mamash amazing. It's an amazing invention. Bezat Hashem, they're going to have a lot of atzlacha. And anyone that's passionate about doing Kiruv should definitely sign up. It's free. And uh, listen, if you're already going to send a lecture, might as well know if anybody watched it. Because sometimes to get the guy that watched it, a lot of people say, listen, I sent my le- your lecture, your personal story or other lectures to a bunch of people. And not everybody responded, but then they call me a year later, like, oh, this guy did chuba. I'm like, what, he just did chuba overnight? No, it took a year. 
just that it started a year ago. You just never knew he watched it. Now, you know who to follow up with. You see that you sent it to ten people. Six of them watched it, four didn't watch it. You don't see them on the screen. So what do you do? You call those guys back. You tell them, hey, listen, did you watch that? Like, oh, I didn't get a chance to. Oh, okay. Don't tell them, oh, I know you didn't watch it. Tell them, oh, you watched it? Take a look at it. And follow up with these people. Go ahead. Do they have to make a profile for you to be aware that they viewed it, or does it just link to whatever? Uh, if, do they have to make a profile themselves? I'm assuming they do, but I'm not sure. I'm assuming they do, but it's simple. It's just uh, they make it simple. Name, you know, name and email, I think. It's not like uh, you have to put your credit card in or anything like that. Uh, so it makes it very, makes things very, very simple. Uh, I think you're the one. As, as the sender, I think you're the one that may have to put their name in there. I'm not 100% sure. Just log on. You'll see it. But it's, uh, it's amazing how okay. you're able to see who saw it, how much time they actually saw it for. Uh, and it's, uh, it's an extraordinary idea. Highly recommended for anyone that's passionate about Cube. And that's also one of the things that we learn about often is that if you're not passionate about Cube, then you don't know what it means. Because to be passionate about Cube should be a given to all of us. Because that means that you love Hashem. And you're interested in making him happy by bringing back his kids. You know, for the last few months, we've been looking for a house. Ever since the whole debacle with the Boca Raton synagogue happened. And we decided that it's not the right community for us. There's obviously some good people in the community and some people that perhaps need to get uh, some more chizuk. But overall, for me, we decided that for us we need a change. So we've been looking for a house. And um, incidentally, as Hashem would have it, Rabbi Ephraim has also been looking for a house for the last month and a half in Jerusalem. So both of them, you know, we're looking this place, that place, you see different options. And both of us learned Musar from it. What's the Musar? It's not easy to find a house because it's not just finding a uh, four walls and a, a door. You have to find a community, you have to find the right synagogue, you have to find the right people that, you know, like-minded. It's not that easy. As a Jew, as a, you know, you're, you're trying to find a good place. So then we learned, look at it this way. Hashem has been looking for a house for 2,000 years. 2,000 years Hashem has been crying because He Himself destroyed His own house and He can't build a new house. Why? Because the community is not ready yet. So imagine we're going through a difficulty for a couple of months and how much we uh, act like we're suffering. Oh, listen, it's hard. You don't have a house. You don't feel comfortable where you are. Ta-ta-ta. Hashem has not been comfortable for over 2,000 years. Why don't we cry for Him? So the least we can do they say, you know what, Hashem, I understand. You're not ready to build your house yet. The Mashiach is not ready to come here. You're not ready to send them. But you know what? Why are you not ready? Because not enough people in the community. So let's bring them back. Let's help people do tshuva. Let's get them to keep Shabbat. Let's send them to late tefillin. Let's get the women to become modest. It's not that hard. What's the cure? The cure is telling them the truth. Treating people like adults and letting them make the decision for themselves. If the guy wants the truth, he's going to take the truth as it is. If he doesn't want it, it doesn't matter. For all of those people that are worried about, listen, if I tell him that a Michalos Shabbat is putting his Judaism on suspension, according to the Rambam, he's considered an idol worshiper, he's going to be offended, he's going to be this. If I tell her that, you know, as long as she's not modest, and she's wearing our tank top and our miniskirts, 
anytime she prays, it's the doors are closed in Shamaim. She's going to be offended. She's going to cry. Listen, if you don't tell them, they're not going to change ever. They're never going to change. You're not giving him a chance. If you tell them, the worst case scenario is they get upset. So what? The best case scenario, you just save their life. Not about the life here. Talk about eternal life. So to not tell them the truth is almost like hating them. It's like knowing that your friend has a train coming at them and not telling them to move out of the way. And that's one of the things that we as Jews, as the sons and daughters of Hashem Barach, have to take into account. You love Hashem, you want to say, you avat Hashem, avat Hashem. Everybody says, I love Hashem, I love Hashem. Everybody loves Hashem. Okay, so how come you don't care about his kids? Why don't you care about his kids? Why don't you say something? So telling people the truth is the least you can do. Why do I mention this now, aside from everything we've mentioned so far? is because the biggest reason of why I'm in this house now is because I listened to Chazal and I told the owner of this house the truth, which hurt a lot. What was the truth? Almost 10 years ago, they did a conversion. Converted to Judaism, but through a conservative shul. Through a conservative bedin. Now, according to Alakha, doing a conversion to a reform, or a conservative, or a renewal type of bedin, is worth zero. You go into the mikveh non-Jew, you come out of the mikveh non-Jew. Why? If you take a look at the procedure itself, for the conservative rabbis, generally it's the same. It's the same. It's three people asking you questions. Reform, they usually have women, sometimes non-Jews even asking questions, so forget about them. Conservative at this point are still keeping it somewhat the same. Sometimes the rabbi is gay, but let's say he's straight. No, it's, it's, it's what happens. The rabbi is sometimes gay. Not, not making just making fun of it. It's a, it's a reality. They also announced recently that as of now, conservative shuls are accepting goyim 100% without need of conversion ever. So this is not like something I'm just doing to, to jab at anybody. This is true. You go to their website, you find this out. So now, in a conservative beddin, five, ten years ago, the procedure was in essence the same. Three people asking questions. You answer the questions right. They say you accept on yourself the mitzvot. You say yes, you go into a mikveh, you dip into the mikveh, you, you know, you say the bracha, chazaku baruch, chazaku baruch, and everything is good. The process itself, in essence, is the same. So why is the beddin of the conservative not kosher, and the beddin of the orthodox kosher? Why? Because the beddin of the conservative also teaches that it's okay for you to drive on Shabbat. The Bedin of the conservative also teaches that you don't have to be modest. The Bedin of the conservative teaches you things that are against the Torah, including that parts of the oral Torah are not 100% true, are not divine. Once someone says that there's parts of the Torah that are not from Hashem, they're no longer part of Am Yisrael. They're no longer considered agun. They're no longer considered fair 
and righteous enough to judge or even be a witness in any ceremony whatsoever that's Jewish. So Kaldachomel, needless to say, they cannot be a judge to decide who's going to be a part of Amisla and who's not. So the procedure, the picture looks the same. But the outcome is different. So now I had to tell this wonderful person that yes, I understand you've been living a Jewish life for 10 years. But I'm sorry to tell you that you're not Jewish. And in order for you to be Jewish, you have to go through a formal conversion. You have to learn certain things and ta-ta-ta-ta-ta. And obviously this was a lot of tears and a lot of difficulties. But Baruch Hashem, because this person was seriously looking for the truth, they went through the whole process all over again. Making sacrifices I don't even want to speak about. Sacrifices that none of us, including myself, would make. None of us would make it. I don't need to know what's in your heart. I know you're not going to make it. No one, in, I don't think anybody else would be able to make it. That type of sacrifices. To do it all over again and to become 100% from. To become 100% Jewish. So this, when we go up to Shemaim, they can ask us, how come you weren't religious? Oh, it was difficult. Oh, was it more difficult for you than them? Who are they going to bring? They're going to bring the Baalabait, the Baalatabait. I'll show you an example why it was more difficult than her. It was more difficult than her. You made sacrifices like her. What did you make? What sacrifice did you make? What, you woke up at 6 o'clock in the morning to go to shul? That's the sacrifice. So, this is something that teaches us Musar that it's time to wake up and stop making excuses because the ones that are fulfilling the prophecy that it says in the Gemara Masechet Abu Dazara, page 3b and also 4a, which is that there's going to be a lot of converts at the end of time. There's another Gemara in Bava Metziah that talks about how the converts are like a skin disease for Am Yisrael. Why is it like a skin disease for Am Yisrael? Hashem counts the converts greater than He does natural born Jews. Why are they a skin disease all of a sudden? They're a skin disease because they're re- it's painful. It's a painful reminder of how zealous you're supposed to be. The convert chose to be part of Am Yisrael. We were born Jews. They're more zealous than us. We're supposed to be more zealous than them. They're reminding us we're still walking while we're really supposed to be running to Hashem. So when Hashem has been looking for a house for the last couple of thousand years, the least we can do is start recruiting His children. Start recruiting the people that are looking for the truth. Some of those people went through bad conversions, went through fake conversions, and they don't even know it. They went to the Reform and the Conservative, and they thought this is Judaism. What do they know? They're not Rabbanim. They're not, you know, Rebbitsons. Can't blame them. Can't be upset at them. Some people that go to even Messianics, which is 100% Christianity, they call themselves Jews. This new creation that's against Hashem, new form of Abu Dazara, has put us in a situation that's more dangerous than any other time in history. Any other time in history. What is the situation that we're in right now? The Gemara in Masechet Sota, page 49, says there's going to be certain things that happen before Mashiach comes. 
Very difficult things. We did a recent film about it. Different prophecies that are going to happen. But in so many words, to sum it up, it says that the situation in the world is going to be unbearable. Unbearable. To such an extent, everyone is going to have to question themselves. The guy with the hat and the beard, and the guy that just put on a keeper for the first time. The goy and the Jew. The one that's looking for the truth, the one that doesn't know what he's looking for. Everyone is going to have to question themselves. It's going to be difficult to stay close to Hashem because you're not going to know what's real and what's not. Now what's happening right now, secretly, but in plain sight, is the most dangerous thing that ever happened in history. And what it is, is messianic form of Christianity that calls itself Judaism. To such an extent that if you ask them, what are you? They say, we're Jews. So for the first time ever, for the first time in history, you have the Christians now calling themselves Jews. You now have people that call themselves Jews and you actually don't know if they're Jews or not. This is a problem. Because in the past, if you look at 2,000 years ago, even though the Greeks and the Romans, killed us, tortured us, they did us a favor. Why was the favor? They only killed our flesh. You want to convert? No. Dead. You want to be a Roman? No. Dead. You want to be a Greek? No. Dead. They did us a favor. Because they only killed the body, the soul, Gan Eden. But in today's world, what they're trying to do in Machshimam is they're trying to kill the soul. They're trying to tell you, listen, come to our synagogue, our messianic synagogue, and go worship Yoshke. JC Penny, he's our Messiah, he's our this, he's our that. But they don't tell you right away about J.C. Penny. They tell you, no, we're Jews, we're just, we call, we're a new tradition, we're modern, we're this, we're that. A few weeks into it, you realize it's not even Judaism. But by then, you're already stuck, you're already friendly with a few people, you already like the guy who calls himself a rabbi, he wears a talit, he wears a kippah, he doesn't look any different than me. If anything, he looks more hip, looks more modern, looks more with the times. And Yaakov Avinu already gave us the prophecy about this over 4,000 years ago. When he said in Parashat Vaishlach to Hashem, he cried out to Hashem before he came and met with Esav. After running away from Esav for several decades, he had to come back. But in Parashat Vaishlach, the book of Bereshit, Genesis, Chapter 32, verse 12. It says, Rescue me, please. He's talking to Hashem. Rescue me, please, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esav. For I fear him, lest he come and strike me down, mother and children. So Chazal asks, 
Wait a minute. We know there's not even one extra letter, let alone not one extra word in the entire Torah. So what is Yaakov Avinu doing here? Reminding us that Esav is his brother. What, Hashem doesn't know? Okay, you want Hashem, rescue me from my brother. We know you're talking about Esav, you only have one brother. Rescue me from Esav, we know that's your brother. So why does he say, rescue me please from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esav? There's a redundancy here. There's a superfluous word. What's happening here? Hazal gives us the chidush. And I learned this with Rabbi Ephraim when I told him about what's happening. And he told me, yeah, of course, this is already a prophecy of 4,000 years. Baruch Hashem, it's happening because we know that Mashiach is that much closer. What is this prophecy? It says, Hashem, when Esav is Esav, we know he's Esav. When Esav is Edom, we know he's Edom. Why? He's killing us. When he's the Roman, when he's the Greek, when he's the Nazi, we know it's him. He's trying to kill us. Rescue me from that hand. The problem is not when he's Esav. The problem is when he plays like he's my brother, Hashem Elohim. And I don't know if he's Esav or not. The problem is when he looks like me, acts like me, and thinks like me, but not really. This is why in the verse it says, rescue me from my brother and then from Esau. Because my brother is much scarier than Esau. Because I know who Esau is. I know where Dom is. My brother, I don't know. I don't know. Now unless we tell people the truth, whether they're already in the Messianic Abu Dazara, whether they're in conservative shuls and reform shuls, whether they are anywhere. If we don't tell them, how are they going to know? So now, it's a responsibility for us. Responsibility for us if we say, everybody says here we love Hashem, right? You love Hashem? Everybody loves Hashem, right? Everybody claims to love Hashem. Everyone loves Hashem. No one fears Hashem anymore, but everybody loves Hashem. So let's play that card. Even though yesterday we talked for three hours about how you can't love Hashem without fearing. But let's skip it for a second, hypothetically speaking. If you love someone, that means it has to be real love, because if it's for a price, then it's not love, then it's self-interest. If you love your wife only because she does things for you, then you don't really love her. You love the things he does for you. It's like the old question that Chazal says, does the fisherman love fish? If he really loved fish, why does he kill them? No, he loves the outcome of the fish. He loves the way they taste. You can't say you love food because then you wouldn't kill the animal that actually becomes that food. You can't say you love your wife if the only time you love her is when she gives you stuff. Whether it be children, food, intimacy, attention, whatever. Kavod. Love has no price. Love's free. 
So if we really love Hashem, that means we have to love Him regardless of our life. Regardless of whether we're millionaires or we're broke. We're sick, Hashem and Hashem, or healthy. Everything is going good or everything is not going so good. If we love Hashem, that means it doesn't really make a difference what happens. Because we love Hashem. So the one simple test of whether we love Hashem, just a little test. If we love Hashem, we want Him to be happy. How could He be happy if so many of His children don't know He exists? How could He be happy if so many of His children are worshipping one of His creations? Whether it be J.C. Penny, or it be some Avodazara in India, or it be some other false prophet from Islam, or some other form of Avodazara, even in Judaism they've created Avodazara, unfortunately they made their rabbis into gods. How could Hashem be happy with this? If the first commandment out of the ten is to remind us that He's the only one. No middleman. Not even Moshe Rabbeinu. Not even Moshe Rabbeinu can come between you and Hashem. The prophet of all prophets, if we needed him, he'd still be here. Anyone that says that has a middleman that need that you need to connect to Hashem, whether it be a Rebbe, or it be a Rabbanit, or it be some Tzaddik, or it be some other form of Avodazarah that they created, anyone that says this is leading you astray, is leading you away from Hashem, not towards Hashem. So how could Hashem be happy if He not only doesn't have a house, but even His children don't know He exists? So the least we can do is tell the children, hey, by the way, you know, I know you prayed to this Yoshke guy, the guy that died 2,000 years ago, where it says in the Torah, God can't die. So he's not God. God's not flesh. We even learned it from Bil'am. Bil'am the Rasha. He still knew God. Still spoke to God. He was still a prophet. Says God's not flesh and blood. He doesn't change his mind. You look at the New Testament, the guy changes his mind every five minutes. One minute he says he's God, the next minute he curses a tree because it doesn't bear fruit. What kind of God are you if the tree doesn't listen to you? But then they change the go, you know what? Maybe the God thing doesn't work, so he says, Okay, no, he's a Mashiach. But Mashiach can't die. A lot of confusion. Now, people that don't study Torah on a regular basis, they're not going to know this. Am Yisrael, the firstborn son of Hashem Barach, doesn't know who God is. Because they think that as long as they kiss the mezuzah before they go to the soccer game on Shabbat, it's fine. No, it's not fine. Hashem says you're not allowed to light fire on Shabbat. Same goes with the rest of creation. The other seven and a half billion people. 
who don't know who their owner is. So the least we can do is tell them. Without sugarcoating. Without tainting the truth with our own personal opinion. Tell them the truth. Because if you do, you have a chance to save their neshama. If we were politically correct and we were worried about people's feelings, then Am Yisrael at the very least would have less Jews today. How do I know? This house. This house would not have more Jews if we didn't say anything. We just, no, no, it's not my business. Conservative reform, it's not my business. What do I care? If I didn't care, why would I tell them something that breaks their heart? You understand? So now, we have to listen to Yaakov Avinu and understand the situation is much more dangerous than we think. Much more dangerous than we think. Now, the Mishnah that we're up to now continues with this thought process. Rabbi Nechunya ben Akana Omer, Kola mekabel alav ol Torah, Ma'avirin mimenu ol malchut ve'ol derech eretz. Ve'kola porek mimenu ol Torah, Notnim alav ol malchut ve'ol derech eretz. Rabbi Nechunya ben Akana says, if someone takes upon himself the yoke of Torah, the yoke of government and the yoke of worldly responsibilities are removed from him. But if someone throws off the yoke of Torah from himself, then the yoke of government and the yoke of worldly responsibilities are actually placed upon him. Explanation. Simple explanation here is that when someone wants to know their creator, they only have one way to find out. One way. Learn his Torah. Now you could know you could have your, a creator, that you have a creator in multiple ways. You could either learn through seminars, through lectures like this, or through slaps and punches from Shemaim. One way or another you're going to learn. In the book of Ezekiel, Hashem tells the prophet, tell Am Yisrael that they will serve me whether they like it or not. The Rambam says in Ilchot Shuvah that everyone that survives the days of Mashiach will have done Shuvah. But the important part of this Alakha that he mentions, this is not some philosophical statement. This is actual Alakha. Is whoever survives will have done tshuva. <laughs> Meaning, not everyone will have the merit to survive. Because in order to survive, you would have had to have already started doing tshuva. You would have had to already know who your maker is. And he explains in the Midrashim on this specific Ezekiel, that when Hashem says you're going to serve me, whether you like it or not, it means that you're going to serve me either through a nice way where you're going to say, oh, wow, Sefer Torah, that's the love letter Hashem gave us. Great, wonderful. 
Let me see what Hashem wrote for me. He wrote for me. He wrote for you. He wrote you a personalized letter. Let me see what it says. Oh, it's instructions of how to live, how to be successful, how to love, how to not uh, do bad things, and so on and so forth. You can learn that way. You can learn through Shure Torah. You can learn through seminars. Or Hashem Rachem, you can learn through disasters. Getting sick, having sickness, death, money loss, disasters. One way or another, you're going to find out who your maker is. Now Rabbi Nechunya ben Akana is telling you that if you actually find out during the first way, there's a benefit to it. There's an added benefit to finding out who your creator is by simply opening books, watching the lectures, having seminars. There's a benefit to it. What's the benefit? If you actually take this yoke upon yourself, not just to find out who your creator is, but actually seeing what it says. Then worldly responsibilities, whether they're from government, like problems, lawsuits, fines, speeding tickets, audits, all of those things will be removed from you. Even the necessity to go work, like everyone else, will be removed from you. You won't have to do it. On the other hand, if you're already doing it, but you decide, you know what, it's not for me. It's not for me learning Torah. It says, well, in the book of Job, the prophet tells us the man was created to do something. To work. He has to have some type of responsibility. Something in their life. They can't just sit there and do nothing. So if you're not going to take the responsibility of toiling in Torah, in the book of Job chapter 5 verse 7 it says, Man must toil at something, for man was born to toil. So if it's not for Torah, then he's going to toil for man. You're not going to work for Hashem, then you work for men. But you're definitely not going to do nothing. That, my friend, is not an option. So let's continue and understand what it actually means to really toil in Torah. Is studying 15 minutes a day toiling? So first and foremost, we have to understand what is all Torah. All Torah means the yoke of Torah. And the Rambam explains that just like a plowing animal is carrying the yoke under all circumstances. You have the cow, it's carrying everything on it. The bull is carrying everything on it. Rain or shine, it's carrying. You're going from city to city, it's carrying. Mud, sleet, dry, wet, doesn't matter. It keeps going. Under all conditions, it's going. Rambam says, that's what toiling Torah is. Regardless of what's happening in your life, Torah is never a sacrifice. Torah is never at risk. 
it officially becomes the number one priority in your life. There's five zillion priorities we all have. Torah is number one. Everything else is as distant, two, three, four, five, and five hundred. Distant. Meaning you live your life with Torah as the purpose, everything else around it. Now there's a couple of different types of people. One is the Avrech. The other one is the Balabite. The Avrech is easier to understand how he can toil in Torah. This person wakes up in the morning, he goes to the Kolel, he studies Torah from morning to night, comes home, spends a couple of hours with the family, helps the wife with the kids, and then if he's a Talmit Chacham, he's going to go back to studying Torah. He's not going to watch TV. He's not watching the game. He comes home, spends a few hours with the family, takes care of the kids, takes care of the wife, whatever needs to take place in the house. few hours, he's finished, studies Torah. Why? Because we learned yesterday from the Rambam that the Torah you're going to learn at night is much more valuable. Much, much more valuable. You're going to study 10 hours from 9 to uh, 7, let's say. Or even 9 to 5, you study 8 hours, let's say. You have a break, obviously, and so on. But let's say you studied 8 hours during the day. Those 2 hours you're studying at night, from 10 to 12, from 11 to 1, from 12 to 2, whatever. Those couple of hours, that's where your chokhmah is going to come. That's where the siyata dishmaya is going to come when you're going to have chidushim. Real chidushim. Not chidushim that are this craziness that we have in this generation where everybody becomes rashi and starts creating things that are contradicting the Torah. We're talking about chidushim that agree with the Torah. Insights that agree with what Chazal says. So Rambam says that you're going to study, your main study, your main chokhmah is going to come at night. But why? Because of the merit of you studying in a day. It also says this in the Gemara. In the Gemara, Masechet Chagah, page 12b, Resh Laki says, one who learns Torah at night, Hashem brings chesed on him during the day. Instead of watching different movies on TV, Netflix, YouTube, all this shtuyot that people waste their life. It's nonsense that people waste their life doing nothing. Instead, you open Pirkei Avot, you open Gemara, you open Chumash, you open Sifret Tzadikim, you open Musar, you open something that's going to wake up your neshama that's sleeping at night. Then Resh Lakish, the Baal Tshuva, is telling you that, my friend, assures you that tomorrow, in the morning, during the day, you're going to have peace of mind. You're not going to have to worry about chasing customers. You're not going to have to worry about chasing this, chasing that. Why? You did Hashem. And sir, a, a service by serving Him at night, by studying His Torah at night, by fulfilling His desire at night, He's going to fulfill your desire in the morning. You did chesed by Hashem at night, to do chesed by you in the morning. To such an extent that Chazal says that someone that understands the significance of studying Torah, like real Torah, at night, 
would never waste one night in an entire year on anything else, even including eating. He wouldn't even eat at night lest he waste time from studying. Because the Torah is so valuable that Chazal says the ones that really want the Torah know that even blinking their eyes is dangerous. So Rabbi Nechunia is telling you there's a benefit. There's a mystical benefit to doing all of this. If you're an Avrech, you have nothing to worry about. You want proof? Oh Hashem, there's over a hundred thousand different people learning Torah in different kolim around the world. Oh Hashem, you've never heard a story of this Avrech died from hunger. This Avrech Died from starvation. Never hear that. David Melech already told us in Birkat Amazon, it's in Teilim. I've been young, I've been old, but I've never seen a righteous person starve or his kids looking for food. Oh Hashem, they're not all living a high profile life in a, uh, on a 35th floor on Wall Street or anything. Most of them are living very, very modest life. To, according to our standards, it's like poverty. But to them, it's fine. They have food on the table. They have kids that are eating. They have clothes. Oh, Hashem. Some are living higher life. But the reality of it is that the closer you are to Hashem, the more disconnected you are to this world. One of the great proofs that I heard was a story I heard from Rabbi Zamir Cohen recently of one of the presidents of his yeshiva when he was a young uh, student in Porat Yosef. There was two presidents of Porat Yosef. One of them was Rabbi Vadya, Zecher Tzadik Levacha. And another one was Rabbi David, David Saliman Sasson. Rabbi David Saliman Sasson was a person that studied Torah with seriousness that you couldn't even measure. Dedication to Torah that was, you would think it's the only thing he had in this world. His life was as simple as he would ride on a bicycle in the street. That's how he commuted from place to place. On a bicycle. No fancy cars, bicycle. Some people thought that you need to give him staka. Because he looked so simple, so modest, they thought maybe he's an avrech, just give him some tzedakah. What they didn't know is that he was a multi-billionaire. Multi-billionaire. Not billionaire, multi. There's rich and there's billionaire. It's different. Different world. But for him, it meant nothing. Gave a lot of tzedakah, kolalim, yeshivot. There's a whole non-profit organization that he has or, or a charitable organization that he has that supports many of these yeshivas to this day. But his life was Torah. And anyone that knows him says, we never even saw him dealing with chasing money. 
Not just after he had money. It's all life. Why? Because he toiled in Torah. Shem said, Oh, you toil in Torah. I wrote something in my Mishnah. Once you toil with Torah, you take it seriously like it's number one, I'll do the rest of the toiling for you. Government responsibilities, monetary responsibilities, don't worry about it. You have a tiny little business, I'll make it a big business. You have a tiny little, little building, I'll make it a big building. You have a tiny little piece of land that nobody wants, I'll make it into the most valuable property that everyone has ever imagined. Dafka, they want to build the World Trade Center on it. Dafka, they want to build a government building on it. And they want to pay infinite amount of money for it. Why? You made my tour number one. So for an Avrech, it's easy. Avrech is already toiling Torah. So you tell him, listen, just make sure they already, you're learning Torah already. Make sure you're learning Torah. Don't just go to the Kolel and smoke cigarettes all day. Don't just go to the Kolel and every five minutes you go outside and on a phone. What's going on? What are you doing? Don't go to the Kolel and be like a fashion show. Oh, wow, your beard looks good. Oh, wow, your belt looks good. Oh, wow, you have nice shoes. You know, unfortunately, in this generation... Sometimes you meet yeshiva students. What do they do They're between each other? First thing they do, they turn around the, the, uh, the tie. Wow. Like, what's the brand of your tie? What do you care what brand my tie? If it's this or if it's that, is that going to make me better or make me worse? Well, you're not going to like me. You're going to like me. You're measuring me based on my tie. This is how far we are from where we're supposed to be. Now in the secular world, it's obvious. But in the religious world, I see a few yeshiva students talking to each other and they're looking at each other's shoes. Wow, Ferragamo! How do you even know Ferragamo if you're Talmit Chacham? How do you even know who Ferragamo is, Bechlal? I know it because I was in that world most of my life. What do you know? You had the benefit of having from parents. What do you know about Ferragamo? What do you know about Versace? What do you know about Stuyot? Why are you so... Addicted to this world, if you're learning Torah, what kind of Torah are you learning? And then you start checking, and they just attend yeshiva. They don't learn Torah. Because if they really learned Torah, they wouldn't even know if they ate or not. It's an amazing story, one of many, many stories, about Rav Ovadia. Rav Ovadia, Zechit Tzadik V'Kadosh Libacha, Loved Am Yisrael like no other. One day, someone asked him a serious question about Alakha and he had to find out the answer. But for him, his humility caused him to make sure that he reviews every single possible opinion ever written about this answer. Including the opinion of simple Avrechim that wrote a little choveret, a little notebook, and published it. No one knows who this Avrech is. But he has access to it, he wants to read his answer. And he's going to write as part of his answer why he's right or why he's wrong. Why he discovered the truth or where he made his mistake. He's going to review everyone's opinion. So writing some of his answers took a long time. One time someone asked him a question, and he started learning and writing the tshuva on Motzei Shabbat. A 
on Tuesday, his son, Rav Yitzchak Yosef, which is the Rishon Lezion now, who told the story, says, Abba, you know, you have to eat with us, you have to sleep, you have to rest. He goes, yeah, yeah, it's almost, I'm almost finished. Abba, you've been working on this since Shabbat. He goes, yeah, why, it's not Shabbat? No, Abba, it's Tuesday. He goes, oh, wow. He goes, what do you mean? You're telling me you haven't eaten or slept since Shabbat? He goes, yeah, I guess I forgot to sleep. Who forgets to sleep? We forget to sometimes to wake up. Who forgets to sleep? He forgot to sleep. That's the difference. You understand? When you have the yoke of Torah and you know that it's the yoke, you know that it's the Torah, you forget to sleep. You forget that there's brands bichlal. You forget that there is anything in this world because it all becomes dust. It all becomes meaningless. People are so astounded by the fact that I left Wall Street. I tell them it's Shtuyot. They're like, what do you mean it's Shtuyot? You probably have like $200 million in the bank, no? I tell them, no, I lost everything. What do you mean? Everything like you probably have still a couple of million then. Like, no, 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 like zero. Like every month is a miracle. And it's hard for people to believe because we live a very, very normal life. Oh, Hashem, we have a car, we have a house, we have a this, we have a that. Food is always in the house, Baruch Hashem. Kids are healthy. Nothing's missing. According to everybody else, I still have millions in the bank. No one wants to believe me. But they ask me, wait a minute. Why don't you just go back to Wall Street, make a few million dollars, and come back to doing Kiruv? Logically, it makes sense. But that would mean I hate Hashem. Simply said, that would mean I hate Hashem. Because by doing that, I would say that first of all, I think I'm the one that's making the money, not Hashem. And that the only way that I can have money is if I go make it. And number two, that means I just don't care about Hashem's children. Whether they're religious, not religious, they love Him, they hate Him, they connect Him. Don't make a difference to me. If I'm not going to do Kiruv, who will? Now yes, there's many Kiruv rabbis in the world. But from my experience, many do kiruv. How many actually succeed is a different story. This is not to be a judge or a jury or to say I'm better than anyone or any of that garbage because I don't think I'm better than anything. But the reality of it is that I see people that have been doing kiruv for 20 years and still there's barely one Baal they could speak of. And then I see emails every single day, text messages every day, phone calls every single day. People tell me that they changed their life because they saw my story, they saw my lecture, they changed, they this, they that. Like, okay, it's obviously working. Hashem wants it to work. How can I go back to Wall Street? But even more than all of this, once you discover what the Torah is to my small level, discover a little bit of what it is. A little bit. Not Ravavadya, not even uh, 1% of 1% of him. But just a little bit taste. Everything turns to dust. 
all the money, all the Wall Street, all the fame, all the this, all the that, all of it becomes mamash worthless. It was never that meaningful to me in the first place. Now it's worthless. It's just grinding water. No matter how much you grind it, it's going to stay water. Staying the same. So when someone is an avrech, you have an opportunity to really, truly toil and toil, and Hashem says, you do it, you're not going to have to worry about bills. Either I'm going to give you rich family members, rich friends, rich this, rich... Some way, somehow, the money is going to show up. When I first learned this, I didn't believe it. I have to tell you the truth. I didn't believe it because I said, it's not possible. But then I saw it. I saw it firsthand what was happening to Rabbi Frank. Rabbi Frank explained to me the inner workings of an Avrech. In Israel, an Avrech makes 1,600 shekels per month. He works full-time at the kolel, studying. Goes to the kolel at 9 o'clock in the morning, goes to pray at 8, let's say. 9 o'clock in the morning, he's at the kolel. He finishes around 5. Some guys finish around 7. They get home. Few hours they learn again at night, sometimes night calls, or they learn at home. But in general, they're most of the day they're in the call. There's no time for a job. You're studying all day, just like you guys go to work all day, they go to call all day. And they get paid sixteen hundred shekels per month. Translation approximately four hundred dollars. Five hundred, say. Tops. Now Israel is not exactly the middle of uh, Africa where you live in huts. Israel is a modern, beautiful country. So that's not cheap. Oh Hashem, many of these families have children. Three, four, five, six, eight, nine, ten children. They have to eat. They have to sleep. They have to get clothes. Average expenses. It's not going to be less than 8,000 shekels per month. If not more, 10, 12,000 shekels. Okay, but I'm starting the month with 1,600. Assuming I came on time the whole month. Because if they're late, they deduct it. There's no joking around at the call. It's not like, oh no, I'm going to show up at 2. They're still going to pay me my measly 500 bucks. No, no, my friend. You show up at 2, you're not getting paid. So now, you have 10,000 shekels a month in bills, the maximum you're going to make from your job is 1,600. That means you're already in a negative 8,400 to start the month. The only way you can do that is if this comes true. The only way you can do this is if what Rabbi Nechunya ben Akana says here in the Mishnah which we got in Mount Sinai. If this comes true, that Hashem takes, oh, you told him my Torah? Okay, the worldly responsibilities, which means your bank account? I'll take care of that. Some have rich family members. Some don't. Rabbi Ephraim doesn't. And Rabbi Ephraim lives a life better than any of us. When they go on Shabbat to go shopping, they don't look at prices. They don't look to save. They don't even try to be frugal. I went shopping with them a few times. And I was certain 
he's got a million bucks in his pocket. Because he started, he said, take a cart. And he took a cart. We don't really need that much food. It's only us, him, and, you know, his few little kids. And I pointed at, like, I don't know, something. He's like, oh, you like that? Like, he takes it like this. He doesn't grab one or two. He's shopping like he's on one of those shows where you have, like, you know, ten minutes or two minutes to collect. As much as you can, you get to keep it. That's how he shops. He knows the kids like cheese. He buys, he buys every type of cheese. You know, you like drinks, he buys every type of drink. You like that drink, that drink, that no, I don't really like that one. Okay, but you, maybe you'll like it. Just in case you like it. It's Onik Shabbat. I'm like, yeah, but you don't need it. No, no, no. Hashem's going to pay for it anyway. He spent almost 1,500 shekels just on a Shabbat. One Shabbat, not every Shabbat. And I fell back. I'm like, why are you shopping all this for me? He goes, for you? No, this is every Shabbat. So I was really worried. I'm like starting to calculate. I have the money on me. Okay, good. If, I don't know if he has the money. He doesn't have the money. I have the money on me. But maybe the million bucks is really in his pocket. I'm not really sure. All I know is that I'm nervous as it gets at the cashier. Because I have a full cart that's going, it becomes a mountain. It became like a dump truck. And he has a one that's bigger than mine. We go to the thing, shop, everything is fine. He gives them the card. The card goes through. Everything is great. It's like, oh, Hashem. After we leave, he goes, oh, Boch Hashem, see another miracle. I'm like, wow, what miracle? Is? Oh, I didn't know if there was any money in the card. You understand? I didn't know if there was any money in the card. I didn't know if, I didn't know if, I didn't know if I had enough. I didn't know if there was any money on the debit card. I didn't know. But I bought. Every Shabbat. Why? Gemara says, Masichet Beitzah, and Masechet Rosh Hashem pays the bills for Shabbat. Hashem pays the bills for mitzvot. Hashem pays the bills for anything that you do to fulfill His will. And the Parnassah you're going to get is already decreed in Rosh Hashanah. So whether you work learning Torah or you work on Wall Street, the Parnassah is already decreed in Shemaim. Hashem wants you to be rich, you can be rich as a Talmud Chacham. Hashem wants you to be poor. You can be poor on Wall Street. He wanted the Nasi, the president of Yeshivat Poat Yosef, Rav David Sasson, to be rich. Didn't mean that he had to stop learning Torah. Became richer than our wildest dreams. So here, we learn something significant. First type of person is the Avrech. Don't worry about being an Avrech. You want to learn Torah full time? Take the Torah seriously. Just like the cow takes its yoke seriously and continue regardless of the difficulties. You're going to have tests. You're going to have tests. You're going to have difficulties. You're going to have times you don't know if there's money in the bank. How do you know that it's going to be okay? How do you know? I don't have money in the bank. I have to buy food for Shabbat. How do I know I'm not supposed to leave the kolel? You know because Hashem wants you to learn Torah. But how do you know you're doing enough when the only thing you can think about is Torah? If you're still thinking about the girls, you're still thinking about the guys, you're still thinking about baseball, you're still thinking about the government, you're still thinking about this world, you're not learning enough. You're not learning enough. So 
you can't really be a hundred percent sure that you're fulfilling your part, so you can't be a hundred percent sure that the other parts can be fulfilled. But if you can fulfill your part, you have nothing to worry about. That's an avrich. But what about a balabite? What about a business owner, a worker, a regular person? Not everybody can be a talmid chacham. Not everybody's necessarily meant to be a talmid chacham. What about the rest of us? This also applies to them. Tiferet Yisrael interprets this as a reference to one who is legitimately exempt from the yoke of Torah due to the preoccupation with his livelihood or government position and nonetheless assumes, assumes it, devoting himself to Torah study beyond his apparent limitations. And he's rewarded in kind. Translation, someone that has a very, very serious test. He has a job that's consuming. He has tests and difficulties in, in his life that are taking up all of his time. Chas Shalom, he has perhaps issues with kids, marriage, job, money, whatever. Since that person, technically, he can't really be a Talmud Chacham. But if he fulfills his share and takes the Torah on him and makes the Torah number one, well, no matter what, he still studies every day. The reward will be just as kind. So the Baalabait, the business owner, the worker, is not exempt in reality. He still has to fulfill his share. Now the question is, when or why did Rabbi Nechunya say this? It's always good to know the background of each one of these Mishnayot. Because last night we learned that Rabbi Hanina ben Chachinai said that learning at night, not wasting any time, that's going to save your life. Or if you do the opposite, you waste time, you don't learn at night. I mean, you're putting your life at risk. This is connecting to a new Mishnah that's telling you if you actually do what? The Rabbi from yesterday, Rabbi Hanina said, then you have nothing to worry about. When did he say this? He said this during the times of the Romans, decreed, you're not allowed to learn Torah anymore. That's when he said this Mishnah. He said this Mishnah a couple of thousand years ago when the leaders, the government, the most powerful nation at the time, the evil Romans, were trying to destroy Amishai and they decreed anyone that learns Torah, death penalty. Here we see the emunah at play. Here we see Rabbi Nechunya ben Akana telling us, not only do you not listen to them, but if you listen to them, that's the cure. If you listen to them, you're going to live. Because one of the benefits, one of the miraculous benefits, okay, it's okay. One of the miraculous benefits, one of the miraculous rewards of studying and toiling in Torah is that Hashem takes away not only the worldly responsibilities but also the yoke of government, the problems with government. Because Am Yisrael, what are you going to fight them with your spears? You're going to fight them with your guns? You're going to fight them with the Iron Dome? You're going to fight them with Tzal, with IDF? What are you going to fight them with? They're bigger than you. 
A dome is bigger than you. There's seven and a half billion people. Who are you going to fight? You don't have enough missiles. If all the Arabs, two and a half billion Arabs, just spit on Israel, they drown. You don't have it. You can't fight them. You couldn't fight them 2,000 years ago. You can't fight them today. Okay, so you ishtadlut. You want to look like you're trying. Fine, you're obligated to do ishtadlut. Great. But in reality, you really think you can fight them? You can't fight them. What's the fight? Rabbi Nechunia is telling you, learn Torah. Moshe Rabbeinu told us, how did he fight and win all of his battles? Every thousand soldiers also had a thousand Tamidei Chachamim studying for them. A thousand people with spears and swords, a thousand people with Chumashim. Why? Because the guy with the sword needs Hashem to make sure the sword actually works. How do we convince Hashem to make sure the sword works? If the guy with the Chumash, the Gemara, the Mishnah, actually reads and toils in Torah. It's the only way to win a war. So Rabbi Nechunia is telling us this Mishnah, not at a time that Am Yisrael is living a pleasant life. We're in a situation where the evil Romans are telling us that if we see you with the Chumash, we're killing you on the spot. We see you teaching, we'll kill you in public, like they did. With the ten martyrs, one of them being Rabbi Akiva. They killed them in public, tortured them. But even that was a favor in comparison to what these messianics are doing to us today. By fooling our nation to believe that we're supposed to worship some guy. Whether it be Yoshke or some Rebbe or some other middleman between us and Hashem Barah. Only answer to our prayers is Torah. Only way we can survive, Torah. But not Torah like Khafif once in a while when I have a chance, I'll learn five minutes here, five minutes there. I'll watch a video for a few minutes. It's nice. It's got special effects. Yeah, all that stuff is good chizukim along the day. You know, instead of smoking a cigarette and looking into the abyss. Okay, so you watch a five-minute quick video. Fine. Instead of sitting there eating your burger and imagining how the fries are going to taste as soon as they arrive at your table, you put a shear on, you listen to it, Instead of talking about basketball, you have a book in front of you that you're going to read, a few psukim. Fine. But that's not your main learning. That's just to get through the day, to survive, to feed your neshama, not just your body. The stuff that's going to keep you alive at the end of times, for eternity, keep you on the right derech, that's the real Torah. That's the fulfillment of actually learning Torah in the morning and at night. You go to work at 8, wake up a little extra early, learn a half hour, learn 20 minutes, learn an hour if you can. You get home, spend some time with the family, don't go to sleep without learning Torah. A lot of people learned different parts of mystical parts of Judaism. 
people love the mystical parts of Judaism, but in reality, most people that learn the mystical parts of Judaism don't really know the basis behind any of them. Because many of them are not so mystical. Like for example, anyone heard of Kriyat Shema Alamita? Reading Shema Yisrael before you go to sleep. You guys all heard about it, right? What do most people believe about why do you read Kriyat Shema Alamita? Why? No, you read it all in the morning, but you have to also read it before you go to sleep. Why? Why do you read it? I know you know. Right, why? Okay, Chazakobo. Both of your answers were mystical answers. To be saved from some impurities, to make sure your klipa is okay, to be saved from the Satan's wife. These are very, very mystical, holy, zorka, those type of answers. Question is, why does it work, Bechlal? Why does Shema Yisrael work? Basic question. This is an Aleph bit. Why does Shema Yisrael actually work to protect you against the Satan's wife? To protect you against wasting seed? To protect you against all of these mystical, crazy things that we can't see, can't hear, and can't think of? Why? Dedicating to what? Why Shema Yisrael? Why not Hashem do me a favor? Tell him not to come. There's a million and a half other covenants that you can be reminded of. Why does it say, okay, Hashem, put a tefillin on my arm, tefillin on my uh, hand, on my head, that's also a covenant. Oh, Hashem, what about the Brit Milah? That's a covenant. You have two other covenants. Why are you mentioning Shema Yisrael? Why is it the prayer of Shema Yisrael? Why? Why don't you say Ten Commandments? Say the Ten Commandments. I got Ten Commandments. The first one, say the Ten Commandments. There's one God, the end. Why Shema Yisrael is the whole thing? It's long. Long Shmaisled. Why have to do such long? I want to go to sleep. Shmaisled, go to sleep. So okay, say Hashem, I know we went to Egypt. Laila Tov. Laila Tov, go to sleep. Okay. You don't wake up. Okay. So you do the Vidui. Okay, you're in the right direction, but it's not it yet. Simple answer. ABC answer. No? What's the answer? Because Shmaisled is actual verses from the Torah. That's it. Shema Yisrael works because the Satan is scared of the Torah. When you're saying Shema Yisrael, it's an essence you're reading verses from the Torah. As soon as the demons, the Shadim, the uh, Satan, the whoever, hears this stuff, they run away. They go, oh, he's a Tamit Chacham. She had Tzadikah. They learn Torah right now at 12 o'clock at night. They're running away from here. Simple, my friend. You don't need, you don't I need to go to the Zohar Kadosh for ABC. It's because you're reciting Divre Torah and you are obligated to say some Divre Torah before you go to sleep for protection. Ideally, you would actually learn something. You'd open Gemara, you'd open something and actually learn some Torah before you go to sleep. But since... Not all of us are Tamidim Chachamim that learn at 2 o'clock in the morning. At least say Shema Yisrael. Because Shema Yisrael is actual verses from the Torah. That's why it works. It's also, if you look, another, another, another way to see how things 
could easily, when you're not studying the basics, you can very, very easily run away and go into some mystical world that you don't need to go into. I'm not saying it's not real. It's real. But the problem is that if we spend so much time with mystical stuff, we can get lost. We can get lost in this mystical world and start worrying about the klipa when we still don't know Allah of Shabbat. We're worrying about different images and features that are beyond our ability to even think about when the basics we don't know. We don't even know when to pray in the morning. So it's very important to keep basics. Now, anyone that uh, has Yalkut Yosef, Yalkut Yosef is the Alachot, all the Alachot, the Shukhan Aruch, are difficult for most people to understand. So, Rabbi Tzak Yosef, Rabbi Vadya's son, wrote Yalkut Yosef. And this is specifically, I mean, it really could be used by both Sephardis and, and Ashkenazis, but I think that uh, Sephardic people tend to uh, get closer to this than, uh, than Ashkenazis, because Ashkenazis have other uh, poskim and gilado that they rely on. But he actually talks about both Sephardis and Ashkenazis here. Look, if the Ashkenazis have a different minag, and Elachot, he mentions it, and vice versa. But anyway... In uh, this series, he, in essence, took everything that's in the Shulchan Aruch and he modernized it in a way where he showed you how it's applicable to today. So obviously, we're not all grabbing a few rocks and lighting fire in the street for fire. We have microwaves, we have ovens, we have uh, all types of boilers and so on and so forth. Back then, they didn't have telephones. Today, we have telephones. Back then, they didn't have electricity. Today, we have electricity. Different things. So he shows you how it's applicable to today. And this is one of the books that was actually also translated from Hebrew to English and also Spanish and a few other languages. It's a very, very successful collection. All Jews should have it. It's, a, it's not a completed collection yet as far as the uh, Hebrew version is obviously completed, but the English translation is not completed yet. There's only about, I think, 15 out of 30 books or 16 out of 30 books, something like that. But anyway... In the Shabbat section, which is three books, three books, this is one of them, in the end of the first book, the Siman 300, he talks about the Alakha of the fourth meal of Shabbat, Melave Malka. Now we all know about the first meal is on Friday night, second meal is Saturday morning, Sudash Lishit, the third meal is between Mincha and Arvit. But here he's telling it's Alakha, it's an obligation to have a fourth meal when? What's Shabbat? Alakha, it's not like a Minag, but it's Alakha, you have to do it. Now, anyone that knows about the fourth meal very easily says, yes, it says that anyone that eats the fourth meal is going to be saved gogumagog. It's going to have uh, the, uh, the bone that a, uh, that's in the back of their neck gets its resources from the fourth meal. 
It's the only meal that it gets its resources from. Mystical stuff. Question is, why? Why do we not have a fourth meal? Why, Hashem couldn't feed our bone in the back of our neck any other way? Why David Amelech? So now, in the Gemara, Masechet Shabbat, page 30b, it says a story of David Melech asking God, when am I going to die? Hashem says, I can't tell you. He says, okay, can you at least tell me the day I'm going to die? Day of the week. It's one out of seven. So, Hashem says you're going to die on Shabbat. On Shabbat. He says, oh, Hashem, can't you kill me on Friday? He goes, no, that would make you study Torah one less day. And one day of your Torah, one day of your Torah is worth to me more, more than all of the korbanot that your son Shlomo is going to bring to me. You know how many korbanot Shlomo Melech brought just in the inauguration of the Bet HaMikdash? Rav Mizrahi did the math on the inauguration of the Bet HaMikdash. Approximately $150 million worth of korbanot were spent just on the grand opening of the Bet HaMikdash. Hashem says, one day of your Torah is worth more than all of those korbanot. So I can't take you from the world on Friday instead of that on Saturday, because that means you would study Torah one less day. Okay, take me on Sunday. No, no, no. No king can be a king at a time that another king is supposed to have his kinghood. Meaning you can't be a king for one more day, because that day, the next day on Sunday, your son, Shlomo, is supposed to start his leadership. You can't go into his time. It's your time, this is his time. Okay, he said them. So the Vila Melech knew a secret. He knew that the Satan is the Yetzirah, and the Yetzirah is also Malachamavit. This is in Gemara, Baba Batra, page 16. It says, Satan, Malach, Yetzirah is Satan, is Malachamavit. First, Yetzirah is the nice one. He convinces you that doing an Avera, doing some sin, is good for you. Hashem doesn't mind. No, no, it's okay. Drive to Shul, you're making a mitzvah. Drive to Shul on Shabbat, you're making a mitzvah. He convinces you, you're making a mitzvah, even though it's an Avera. It's nice. So the smile... Sometimes got long hair, sometimes short hair, sometimes heels. All types of nice ways he comes to you, the Yetzirah. And he convinces you that your Avera is a mitzvah. After he convinced you, he's the Satan. What's the Satan? He goes up to Shammai and says, look, look, look at what he did. Look what he did. Look, he just drove on Shabbat. Hashem, you said, somebody drives on Shabbat, mot yumat. No, Hashem. He goes, tells on you. After that, Hashem, Hashem, Hashem says, okay, no, that's what I said, that's what I have to reveal. What does he do? He sends him. He becomes Malach He's the one that has the job of taking the soul out. 
But this very same Gemara, David HaMelech Nudas, he knew that in Gemara Brachot, we find out that Hashem created the Satan with a nature that's scared of Torah. Scared of Torah. So David HaMelech said, okay, so what am I going to do? Every Shabbat, as long as I'm studying Torah, he can't kill me. So David HaMelech would start studying on Friday night and he wouldn't stop studying. He wouldn't stop learning Torah. We're sleeping five minutes after we eat the Kiddush or two minutes after we eat Chulint. David HaMelech was studying Torah because he knew that his life was depending on it. And he studied and studied and studied. And when Shabbat ended, we'd have, like Amos, the tzaddik said, he'd have a celebration, a fourth meal. What's the fourth meal? He didn't worry about resurrection of the dead. He didn't worry about the bone in the back of his neck. What did he worry about? Honoring Hashem for keeping me alive for another Shabbat. Hashem kept me alive because He fulfilled His promise. If I learn Torah, I put the yoke of Torah on myself, I don't have to worry about anything. Even my life. And He studied Torah and one of His ways of celebrating it was me having the fourth meal. So now, how did He die? In the Gemara Shabbat, page 30, talks about how the Satan had his permission to take David HaMelech's life. But he saw that he's learning Torah. How can I kill him if he's learning Torah? I can't kill him. So what did he do? He made some noise outside, outside of his window in a tree. David HaMelech got up off his chair to go see what it is. And for a moment he wasn't thinking about Torah because he slipped and fell. For that moment that he wasn't thinking about Torah, the Satan took his life. So now, the Chafetz Chaim asks a question. In the Gemara, Masechet Chagigah, page 13b, it says that someone that is learn in the middle of learning Torah and gets up to go do shtuyot, to go do nothing, to go check who's outside, to go watch the game, to go do something that's not Torah. They take hot coals that never get cool, which they call Gechale Ratamin, and they feed it to him as a punishment in Shemaim. For taking time away from the Holy Torah and going wasting it on something that's Shtuyot, nonsense. So obviously David Melech knew this. So how could David Amelech, who was Kodesh Kodeshim, get up from the middle of learning Torah to go check who's on a tree? Why? He didn't know this Ma'ah. No. Anybody? Amos, you may have an answer. Let us scream. What is his business? He's learning Torah. 
No, Michael? You had something. Yeah, I have a question. And so is it more so the evil inclination prompts you to deviate from the path in which you're on, or it actually clearly manifests itself as a temptation out there? So which, which is the... You're learning Torah? I'm in the Someone is learning Torah? They hear a phone. They go pick up the phone. You have a problem. Learning Torah, they hear the game. They want to. They go get up and see who's winning. But is it my desire to go look, or is irrelevant? It... You get up, you go check. You got a problem. You got a problem. Why? You just took holy of holies and treated it like it's worth less than the nonsense that's in this world. Well, I guess I'm asking: Is it an inner discipline thing, or is it? More of course, you have to value Torah. Once you value Torah, you're not going to do it. But it takes time. Yeah, of course, it takes discipline. Of course, it's, it takes takes time to discipline yourself. Absolutely, but let's stay on the subject at hand. How could David Melech make such a simple error, as we see it right now, because we don't know the answer, and get up to go check who's outside on a tree? Okay, he fell down the stairs. Why is he getting up, Echlan? He's learning Torah. He knows that if he stops learning Torah for a moment, he stops learning to offer a moment. Satan can take his time. Malach Amava takes his life. So it's not only that he knows about this Gemara, that there's a punishment in heaven for taking Torah and Mevatelo time and, and, and treating it like it's not worth much. Not only that punishment. Let's say that's in the back of the mind. The actual front of the mind is thinking that the only reason I'm studying non-stop is because I know that if I stop, Malach Amava is showing up at my door. So how could David Melech make this decision? No? No, it's just a question. You guys are typical Jews. You ask, you answer a question with a question. It might be kind of dumb. I don't know. No, it's not a dumb question. Anyway, so. like, uh, uh, David, he, he walked downstairs. We know that. I mean, what do you think would have taken the, the role with him? I mean, you know, go with him, went down there with him. I mean, Taking a Sefer Torah with him. Yeah. Taking Sefer Torah with him is not learning. There is, there is a, uh, there is a um, uh, saying. We haven't found a source for it yet. There is a saying that if someone is carrying a holy book, it gives them protection. There's a saying. There's a uh, known saying about it, but unfortunately we don't have a source in the Gemara about it. Uh, there's a joke, it's a story that was, uh, that's kind of funny. It's a real story, actually kind of funny. I heard from another friend. So there was one time a guy that uh, was very, very arrogant. And uh, he studied some Torah, but he considered himself much more than what he was. He considered himself a Talmud Chacham. He decided to write a book. Today, anybody with a beard can write a book. Sometimes without a beard, they can write a book too. So he wrote a book. And he thought that this book was like holy of holies. The real Tamidim Chachamim said this is, you, they said what the poskim sometimes say, which is that by writing this book, you made a sin of Baltashchit. What's Baltashchit? You wasted something. You're not allowed to waste stuff. You can't. If you have, let's say, for example, a lot of food, you don't eat all of it. You're not allowed to just throw out food. If it's still good, you have to use it. If you have uh, certain things that can be used or gifted to somebody, you have to gift them. You can't just throw things. You can't be just treating things with uh, disrespect. 
So he said, by him writing this book, he fulfilled, he, he made a sin of Bal Tashchit on the paper and the ink. Meaning he wasted his time by writing this book. So one day, he's at uh, this house and uh, it's at night and he says, somebody gonna, you know, maybe uh, walk with me at night because uh, nobody was able to go with him. He goes, you know what? I'm going to take a copy of my book. I'll take a copy of my book. So one of the uh, wise guys over there said, oh, take a book. It's a good idea. It's a good idea if you take your book. Because, oh, you know that saying also that if you take a holy book, it protects you at night? Because, no, no. I know that if you take your book, then the demons are going to come. They're going to see what's in the book and they're going to know for sure you're not a Tamit Chacham. There's nothing to mess with you with. They're going to go somewhere else. So now back to our question. I think it's even worse because as far as I know, uh, baby asked Hashem uh, what time. I mean, he didn't hit the time. Only right, the day. right. He gave him a day. So he knows. He knows this is the day. Time, he knows this is the day. He takes a minute of Torah. Malach HaMavit's allowed to show up. How could the Vina Melech do this? Why is, why is that really a question of the Gemara and Sotah says that if a person, a person protected even when he's not learning Torah from the Torah that he learned as opposed to the Mitzvah, that he's not protected when he's not doing the Mitzvah? Because it also says that if you're in the middle of learning and you haven't finished your learning, you haven't, he, started he started and he stopped in the middle without stopping. He wasn't stopping learning. He was stopping to go check what's outside, what's making noise. It's the equivalent of, let's say, if at this point it's the equivalent, because we don't understand what actually happened, which I'll tell you in a minute, but it's the equivalent of, let's say, we're learning right now, and the phone rings, we go pick it up. So what does the Chafetz Chaim say? Chafetz Chaim says an amazing Chidush. Of course, David HaMelech knew this. David HaMelech is Kodesh Kodeshim. David HaMelech also knew much more than we could even imagine. He knew the day he's going to die. He knew that the minute he stops learning Torah on Shabbat, Malach HaMavit showing up. He knew that Malach HaMavit scared of Torah. But he also knew the basics. The basics that we learned in last week's parasha of the, one of the 600 mitzvot, 613 mitzvot of Ocheach et You must rebuke your brother. He knew the basics. And Chafetz Chaim says, when he heard something on a tree, he's like, wait, it's Shabbat. You're not allowed to climb a tree on Shabbat. Let me go stop them. So they don't desecrate Hashem's name and be a Mechalev Shabbat by climbing a tree on Shabbat. So he didn't stop learning. He went to fulfill a mitzvah. But the fact that the Satan had permission, he was able to remove the stair and made him slip and made him stop thinking momentarily of Torah, and that was the moment. Why? Because Hashem decreed it to be that moment. It wasn't because he got up. It wasn't because he made a sin. The limitation is in our understanding, not in David HaMelech, not in our Torah. There's a decree in Shemayim. But the point here is that we see how zealous David HaMelech was, how honest he was, just hearing some, a possibility of somebody making a sin already made him made his heart break. How could somebody sin against my father? 
How could somebody go climb a tree on Shabbat B'yamechel Shabbat? How could it be? Today, unfortunately, we have people driving on Shabbat, nobody says anything to them. No one says anything. No, I don't know him well enough. No, I know him, but I don't want to hurt him. No, I know him, but he, maybe he's going to stop on his own. Everybody has 500 excuses of why they're not going to tell anybody anything. David Melech didn't have any excuses. He heard something, got up. That's why he's David Melech. So, the reason why we have the fourth Seudah, Melavim Malka, is because of David Melech. When he survived Shabbat, he'd celebrate the Shabbat that he survived. Why does he deserve to have a meal after him? Because look at how zealous he was. You be that zealous, they'll have a meal for you too. Now, to finish this Mishnah, then go any questions that you guys have. When someone is an Avrech, we already know, they have an opportunity of a lifetime to fulfill the will of Hashem. Someone's a Balabite, they have the same exact responsibility, they must learn Torah, obviously they have to work, they have to have their Yishtadlut of working, but it does not exclude them from Torah. And the more they dedicate to Torah, the less they're going to have to work. Why? Because Hashem is going to work for you. Now if somebody is foolish enough to leave the Torah, it says here, then you can have something else to replace it. If someone throws off the yoke of Torah for himself, then Hashem has to give him something to do. So he says, okay, you can't just sit there and do nothing. So I'm going to give you promise with the government. What is it? Audit from the IRS. Investigations. SEC, FINRA, FBI, DEA. All these wonderful human beings showing up at 5 o'clock in the morning at your house. That's problems with the government, my friend. If that's not enough, oh, by the way, the worldly responsibilities... They're going to consume your life. You could work three jobs and still not have, not have enough money. You ever see one of those people? They have three jobs and they're still broke? But yet you have one guy who has a half a job and he's a millionaire. How? Hashem decided, Hashem decided he's going to be broke. He decided he's going to be rich. Even if the guy that has three jobs and works 90 hours a day, not 24 hours, somehow he invented... Another 66 hours in one day. He works 90 hours a day. He's still broke. Why? Shem says, you want to spend all the time instead of learning Torah, instead of connecting to me, instead of honoring me, instead of serving me. You want to honor man. You want to serve man. You want to work for man. You're going to do it for 90 hours a day. And you're still going to have nothing. Nothing in this world and nothing in the next world. Double punishment. Why? Because you took my gold. You took my priceless diamonds and you treat them like they were worthless. And sometimes we see some of the punishments for this actually happen where you see people that have wasted their life and they get older, but they get older much faster sometimes. You see sometimes a 70-year-old guy that never learned Torah in his life, or 65-year-old, already started to go senile. 
or he's starting to lose his memory. In the Gemara, Masechet Ketubot, page 59a, it says that idleness, you know, wasting your time doing nothing, eventually leads to intellectual dullness and ultimately forms of, uh, forms of mental illness. In essence, if you're not going to use this brain and this neshama that Hashem gave you to learn His Torah, eventually it's just going to shut down. It's going to die. You're going to start having memory loss. You're going to start acting like the baby. You're seven years old, but you're acting like the baby. The ones that are tamidim chachamim, you see them as they get older, they get sharper. You see Ravavadya when he was nine years old, Sharper than the sharpest knife you can imagine. Any of the tzaddikim, you see them? Sharp. Amazing. Ask them a question, they give you an answer on the spot. Yeah, their body is not necessarily a 20-year-old body, but their mind, as sharp as it gets. You see someone that didn't learn to hide in his life at seven years old? Who are you again? What? What do you want from me again? Oh, Steve? Oh, hi, Steve. What's Steve? I'm Dan. They forgot who you are. They have no idea what's going on. Why? Ian Gemai told you that boredom doesn't only lead to sin, like Shlomo Amelech told us in Proverbs, but boredom also leads to stupidity and to mental illness. Sometimes you see somebody, he talks a lot, doesn't say anything. He said 500 sentences, you have no idea what he said. This happens often, unfortunately, in this generation. I remember I used to have these guys try to come to uh, work for my firm. And, you know, people try to impress you, which, you know, whatever. It's, it's, I guess it's part of the gig. Everybody likes to impress people. But sometimes people don't know where they stand. So they try to play like they are more than what they really are. So, for example, one of the two, there was two ways they would do it. One way is by faking their resume. Saying that they have much more skills than they really have. So you look at the resume, it's like some guy that's like a rocket scientist. And I had one guy that had rocket scientist resume. The guy had licenses in the securities business. It was all these things. Amazing. Interview? Sounded fine. I mean, how much can you possibly find out in an interview? Interviewed the guy a few times. He sounded fine. Spoke well. Spoke like Obama. Spoke well. Looked fine. Didn't look like a criminal or anything. Fine. Within two days on the job, I found out he's the biggest idiot I've ever met in my life. The whole thing was fake. Everything he said he knew, he didn't know anything. He didn't even know how to make a UPS slip. Remember I told you guys a story about him? I couldn't get rid of him. 29 days I had to suffer from him. And after 29 days, I fired him, and he still collected unemployment for me for two years. Two and a half years, collected unemployment. He worked for 29 days. Ended up collecting unemployment for two and a half years. You know how to cheat the system. It doesn't make him smart. It makes him a criminal. That's one way that people do it. Another way that people do it is they use big words. People love to sound like dictionaries. They use big words. They start using big words. So I had a few guys come to me, and they start talking, and they start using these different words. One guy, I don't think, it's whatever, different words. Flabbergasted and exuberant and... All these wonderful words that you read in books. But you don't actually talk like that. And why are they using these big words? Because they're, in reality, they're trying to imply that they're more than what they really are. But how do you know someone's really smart? 
How do you know? When they could explain something complex, something difficult, in a very simple way for a two-year-old to understand. If your difficult thought process is something you can't explain to a four-year-old kid, you don't know well enough. Right. But if you're using big words and no one in the room understands it except you, even if you are smart, no one knows. All they know is that you study the dictionary. So you have to understand, when you explain yourself, Chazal tells us in a few Mishnayot, that Chachamim have to be careful with their words. If you're really a Chacham, you have to be very careful with the words you choose. Why? Because you have to make sure that whatever comes out of your mouth has to be understood by the public. If no one understands it but you, okay, you're smart, but no one knows it. They just know you study the dictionary. So, people that fake it, usually they sound like that. Because people that actually know those words and they know what they mean, they don't use them. No, no one uses 20, 20 letter words in actual language. Unless you're like some doctor or scientist and you need to use it because it's the only word to describe something. But in actual day-to-day language, no one uses some of these big words. They're just part of the English language. You have to be able to explain yourself in a very, very simple way. Very easy way. Why? Because somebody that's not in front of you may be overhearing it. And you may change his life. You may change his life. The six-year-old that's in the back, you may change his life. And I'll finish it with a story. A story that's going to give us enough rebuke for a generation. Enough musar for a generation because it's a real story. I don't think I ever said it in a lecture before. I think I've told it to one person. Well, Ephraim, Sheikhyeh, was uh, born and raised in Netanya, in Israel. And in the Shechunah in Netanya, in the neighborhood of Netanya, there was uh, a very strange couple. The father was an alcoholic, drunk, a little crazy. Not all there. One time somebody got upset with him, he got upset with him, he bit him. Bit him like a dog. Bit him. So he's not all there. He's the father. The mother, and if it wasn't for Mother Friend, I wouldn't believe the story. The mother is approximately one and a half feet tall. She's just big. She's big. She says, Robert Freiman says she doesn't come up to his knee. And Robert Freiman is slightly shorter than me. Smaller than Paul. Robert Freiman is slightly shorter than me, like maybe a couple of inches shorter than me. Says the woman does not come up to his knee. To his knee, doesn't come up to it. Says all the kids, the little kids like my daughter, or bigger than her, make fun of her because she's smaller than the kids. And when they were going to get married, the initial Rabbanim didn't want to let it go through because they said, how are you going to bring kids? Physically impossible. This guy is a regular size guy. This woman is compact. Like a CD. You know, how are you going to make any kids? They went to some Mekubal, 
which I don't know the name of the Mekubal. The Mekubal said, I promise, Shamayim, I pray for you, you can have at least one son. So let her get married. They got married, and they actually had a son. Now when Rabbi Ephraim finished the Shas the first time, he was still a young teenager. He's finished the Shas, finished studying the entire Gemara for the first time as a young teenager. And he, every time he finishes the Shas, he has a party. And one of his parties that he did later, later on, one of the many times that he finished the Shas, Rav Vadya's son, Rav David Yosef, came to the party and made a uh, speech at Rav Ephraim's uh, event and said, from now on you have to call him Gaon. Not Rav, Gaon. Something special. Baruch Hashem. So Rav Ephraim finished the Shas. Baruch Hashem. Several years passed. One day he gets a phone call. It's a similar voice. He says, no. Hi, Kodarav. Yes. It's like, I am formally inviting you to my party of finishing the Shas for the first time. Thank you, Baruch Hashem. Who are you and why do I get the honor of getting this invitation? He said, because you are the one that encouraged me to finish the Shas. He goes, who are you? He said, I am the son of the little compact woman and the drunk. I'm the teenage son of these two goes, oh, but I don't think we ever spoke. How did I encourage you to do anything? He says, because the first time you finished the Shas, I was only 10 years old. And I saw you, and how you finished the Shas. I saw how much respect everybody gave you. He said, I want to do that. And from that moment on, all I did was get glued to the Torah, and I started learning non-stop. And today I finished the shots, and you're the first phone call I have. So Ephraim says, I'll be there. And Ephraim went to the party. It was an amazing event, something that no one in their wildest dreams would ever think the son, the byproduct of an alcoholic and someone that's physically deformed, that everyone makes fun of, is going to be a Talmud Chacham, not a regular person. Finish the shots. Rabbi Ephraim comes and makes an announcement. So Rabbi Ephraim talks to the mother, this little woman, and she gets so excited, she starts hysterical crying. The next day, the Talmud Chacham calls Rabbi Ephraim and he tells him, listen, you don't know what you did for my mom. He says, what? You talking to her, you have no idea what kind of impact it had on her. It's the first time an adult spoke to her in years. And to give her such kavod for having me as a son, she never thought in her wildest dreams. So this, teach, this story teaches a few things. Number one, you never know who's watching. Brother Ephraim as a little teenager finishing the Shahs, who knew that this is going to influence a kid that was supposed to be the biggest loser in the world based on where he came from, based on his nature and nurture. Both. 
you're supposed to be the biggest loser in the world, became a Talmit Chacham. You never know who's watching. And the second thing is, when you give people honor, you give them respect, you treat them like they're Hashem's children, you have an impact on them. But the biggest thing of all that we learn from this is you don't have any excuses. Is your mother double the size of this cup? Is your father an alcoholic? Are you mentally challenged? Are you physically deformed? Do you have a test bigger than he did? Well, I'll finish the story with this. Just this past Pesach, when Ephraim went to visit Netanya, he comes during Pesach, usually he goes to visit his parents in Netanya, he lives in Yerushalayim. He went to visit his parents, and he was sitting in the uh, kollel over there learning Torah. And all of a sudden he gets a tap on his shoulder. He looks up and it's a tall, handsome, mechubad, someone respectable, wearing a jacket that the Tamidim Chachamim wear, not just an average person, but someone that's a rabban of like a kila, that's a known place, but it's a familiar face. He gets a little closer and he says, it's the boy that finished the sass. So not only did he finish the Shas once, he actually became a Rav, an important Rav in Eretz Yisrael of a Keilah. Even more so, a reminder that we don't have any excuses. No questions. This light is killing me. Yeah. Yeah. But then you look at it, you just said David Amelech, but David Amelech just suffered all his life. Wasn't he actually supposed to get all those blessings ten times more than us? He did get blessing. I mean, it doesn't necessarily say that you're going to be rich if you um, if you do what Hashem says. It says that you'll have merit for it. The real schal, the real schal, is not even in this world. As a matter of fact, the Rambam explains that. Anytime somebody gets anything in this world, let's say, for example, somebody does a few mitzvot, Hashem says, okay, you know what, I'll give him a brand new car. Does a few mitzvot, he gives him a house, gives him a building, gives him a wife, gives him a kids, all these things. He says, that's not even really the real schal, that's not really the reward. It's not the real reward. Because this reward that you get in this world, let's get a mitzvot. It would be unfair. It would be unfair for Hashem to... Thank you. It would be unfair for Hashem to give you the reward in this world because you can't compare the greatest of, of treasures in this world to a second in Allah Abba. So why does Hashem give you a reward here? It's to fulfill mitzvah goreret mitzvah. Or avera goreret avera. Every time you did a mitzvah, Hashem says, oh, you want to give donations? Okay, I'll give you more money. You give more donations. You like doing my mitzvah? You give donations? I'm going to give you more money. You can make more donations. What's the source of it? We see it in Teilim. Teilim. 
It says, Adonai Shomrecha, Adonai Tzilecha, Al Yad Yaminecha. Hashem, your guardian, Hashem is your guardian, Hashem is your protective shade, at your right hand. Now, Hashem Shomrecha means, Hashem is your guardian. Hashem Tzilecha, here it says the translation in English is, Hashem is your protective shade, but Tzilecha really means your shadow. He's the shadow of your right hand. What does the shadow of your right hand mean? What you give, you get back. Like T-Z-E-L. So here we see that the reward, this is called Siat Bishmaya. I mean, I had it open, but I had no idea I was going to actually say it. I was thinking, you just need it to flip so that's Siat Bishmai. I tell you guys, I come to the lecture, it has nothing to do with me. Oh, Hashem, Siat Bishmai. So, the, uh, you make me look knowledgeable, but it's, I have to remind you guys, I know nothing. Everything is Hashem. Hashem can take away all the wisdom that I have in a second. Hashem can give me a lot of wisdom because I can take wealth, give you wealth. Nothing to do with me. Nothing to do with me. I'll just tell you what he says. Parrot, parrot. Alvai parrot. Um, so, as far as Hashem giving you reward, why does He give you reward? He gives you the ability to fulfill Momik's vote. On the other hand, if someone makes a sin, sometimes you see him as a building also. So, how does the guy that drives with a Ferrari on Shabbat have a building? How does he have two buildings? This we learned from Parashat Vaitchanan, the last three verses. Hashem says, I pay my lovers. For thousands of generations, I, I give my lovers, the ones that keep my mitzvot for a thousand generations, meaning forever. But I pay my haters to their face to eliminate them. Meaning, you made a mitzvah at some point. You were 13, you did uh, tefillin for the first time. Chabad came to your, uh, to your job a few times, you laid tefillin. You're going to get paid for that. You gave some tzedakah, you're going to get paid for that. You did a bracha at some point, you're going to get paid for that. You made a few mitzvot, directly and indirectly at some point, you're going to get paid for that. But since you're a mechalil Shabbat, since you're making certain sins that eliminate you, from Olamaba, I have to pay you now. Why? I have to eliminate you. Because once you get to me, there's no more. It's over. So, as far as getting our reward here, the Rambam explains that yes, you get a reward here, but it's not the real reward. The real reward is Olamaba. And this is also one of the things we're going to learn in uh, the Mishnah Avot, also especially in chapter 6. The sixth part of the uh, of Avot, it talks about how you have to make sure you understand the real reward. It's not here. It's not here. Now, as far as David Melech, listen, David Melech was a king. David Melech has the uh, the descendant of uh, the Mashiach is coming from him. David Melech is one of the greatest human beings that ever lived. If that's not a reward, then what is? They're not mentioning me. The, 
אין התורה. מי שדוד המלך. So if that's not a reward, what is? Yeah, you have a question? No, it's not even necessarily a curse. You know, like the way that Rabbi said, you know, like there's a weak attachment to advance the Urban, but at any point you have the opportunity to do Shuba with everything you would bestow upon, even if it's to cash you out. At any point you can utilize that to bring about your own redemption. Yes. But a lot of times you get caught up in Western validation. Yes, sir. I'm getting money, so I must be doing the right thing. Yes, sir. 100%. That's the test. Hashem has to give you a test. There has to be an obstacle. There was somebody that came to Rav Shach one time, was going to his shiurim, and one day he didn't show up, and Rav Shach said, oh, come here, come to my shiur. He goes, no, 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 for the Rav, you have to understand, it was a uh, soccer game. He goes, what's a soccer game? What is that? He goes, no, soccer, you know, kadwegen. What's that? He goes, you know, no, I don't know. What is it? He goes, listen, it's a two teams, and each has a goal, goal post, and there's one ball, and each one, the objective is for each one to kick the ball in the net. He goes, okay, so why don't you just give each other the ball, play nice, and kick the ball in the net? He goes, no, for the rab. The whole point is that they try to put the goal in each other's post. He goes, okay, so why don't they play nice and let each other, he kick it one time, you kick it one time. He goes, no, 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 there's a goalie. There's a goalie there trying to stop the ball. So tell the goalie to move. He goes, no, for the rav. If the goalie is not going to stop it, there's no point. He goes, ah, your ears should listen to your foolish mouth. If there's no one to stop you, there's no point. If the Yetzirah is not going to give you a soccer game in your mind, there's no point for your mitzvah. If you're not going to have the inclination to want to make money, your Torah is not going to be worth anything. If the girl that's dragging your eyes to her is not your wife, what's the point? If it's your wife, then it's a mitzvah. If it's not your wife, it's an avirah. Life and death, is a very thin line between them. But that's the point. That's the point. Of, that's the whole point of the game. If there's no yetzah, there's no point. No? Next. ברוך Uh, unless at least 40% of the pool came from rain. Um, so if, let's say, for example, a jacuzzi, you want to make your mikveh at home, it can't be because it's assisted. So if you see like a regular, a regular mikveh, they usually have a tube that's connected to the roof or somewhere outside that moves the water into the mikveh and fills up at least 40% of the mikveh's water. So a river is 100% rain. So our ocean is also 100% uh, natural. As a matter of fact, the highest level of mikveh is the ocean. The most purifying mikveh is the ocean. The problem is that most of the places that you can dip in the ocean, there's a bunch of putzot, there's a bunch of immodesty there, so you're not allowed to go. Not only are you not allowed to go dip there in the water, you're not even allowed to go there. Like if there's going to be people there, you're not allowed to go there. 
there's going to be women with immodesty, it's not a mitzvah, it's an avera. Ve'en mitzvah ba be'avera. You're not allowed to go, no, no, so I'm going to go purify myself, go into the ocean to dip in a mikveh, and I'm going to go back home. I'm not going to look at the girls. No, my friend, if the girls are there, you're not allowed to go there. So the guys that do go to the, uh, there's a few people that I know that go to the ocean uh, to dip in a mikveh, and they go at uh, really, really, really early times, like really, really early in the morning when there's pretty much no one there, and also they go to an exclusive part of the ocean where usually there's nobody there. It's an ugly, there's no like pretty beach, it's like rocks. And they dip in the ocean, they come out, that's fine, that's, that's good. But I mean, you don't need to do that, just go to a mikveh, there's plenty of mikvehs, Baruch Hashem. We're not in the uh, middle of Russia where the uh, Yevzeksia and other communists over there are uh, killing people because you built a mikveh. Like uh, Rabbi Zilba wrote in his book. Rabbi Zilba wrote in his book to remain a Jew, wrote that they killed several people because they had a mikveh. We're not in that world right now. Baruch Hashem, Hashem made it very, very easy to be a Jew. Very easy to be a Jew. No more questions. Ken. I guess I'm at that middle point where I don't check my bank account because more than likely it's going to be zero, so how the time still works. So though? But I then still feel like there's got to be something more I should be doing to deserve. Like, I end up getting this guilt, like, well, if you're studying enough, maybe you should just still make that extra phone call, work a little bit more. You have to work as much as your Amunah is. Meaning that, yes, you have to have Ishtadlut, you have to have effort. But you can't overdose on effort. But it's guilt driving me to it. It's not actual. You know what I'm saying? It's like a, it's a lower urge. No, no, yeah. like, Oh no, I have these guilt. Well, I mean, the good news is, the good news is that in David Melech taught us many, many things in Talim, uh, in his uh, Psalms, and he says that Hashem even pays reward and sustenance to a rasha, to a wicked person just because he believed that Hashem should help him. Not because he deserves it. So if a Rasha prays for Hashem to help him rob a bank, Hashem will help him. Why? Because you believe that I'll help you, I'll help you. Just, that's enough of a reason for Hashem to help him. He's still going to get punished for robbing the bank. But Hashem will help him do it. So if Hashem is helping the Rasha, it's called it's needless to say that he's going to help somebody that's learning Torah. But at the same token... We have to do our Ishtadlut. We already know from Adam Arishon that part of the curse of being in this world is that you have to sweat in this world. But mm-hmm. this is a curse. Working is a curse. You don't overdose on curses. Yeah. You know, you don't do too much of the curse. You do enough, just enough, your Ishtadlut. How much do you work? Each person has to work based on their, on their emunah, on their actual faith in Hashem, but also based on what you're doing with the rest of your time. So if, let's say, for example, you don't work, you don't have a job, you should be studying Torah all day. Like, all day. Not like two hours a day. Like, all day. Because you're not, you're not allowed to just sit there and do nothing. If Hashem gave you the leisure and the ability to sit there and live without actually working, if you're not making your world a Gan Eden of Torah, you'll have a Gehenom of it. You'll get punished for all that waste of time. And one of those punishments is that he's going to put you in a situation where you're going to have to deal with a lot of worldly problems. So if you have an opportunity 
to study Torah uh, uninterrupted, you have to do it. On the other hand, if you're the average person in the world that has a job, has a career, and can't really study Torah all day, this is really who this applies to most of the time, then you obviously have to make time for Torah. You have to make some time in the morning, you have to make some time at night, you have to make every opportunity you possibly can to learn Torah. And in essence, what we're trying to learn in this Mishnah, and what Rabbi Nechunia is telling you, and also Rabbi Khalina from yesterday is telling you, is that it's very, very important for a person to manage their time properly. Because you're not allowed to, to waste time because the time is not yours. You don't know how much time you have. Even though everybody thinks they're going to live to a thousand, the reality of it is that you don't know. So when you show up to Shemaim, you want to have something to show for it. And for the few people that think that because they gave a few, a few dollars in tzedakah, that's going to help them in Shemaim, then you have to understand that that is helping you more here than anything else. So in the Gemara uh, Masechet Shabbat 150b, it talks about how tzedakah is going to save you from death, but also not only save you from death, but also from death itself, and also from Geinom. And it says in the Gemara, there's uh, three things about the uh, uh, this um, tzedakah, but in the uh, Tehilim, David HaMelech, Tehilim 121, um, it says, So when it says, What's Ezri Me'im Hashem? Where is a... Uh, David HaMelech is saying, Where will my help come from? My help will come from Hashem. What, in essence, what he's trying to tell us here is that a person has to understand that in reality, there's nothing but Hashem. There's nothing but Hashem. And his help is only going to come from Hashem. Only going to come from Hashem. So, if someone is going to take the role of being the person that gives staka, they in essence need to understand that they have to do something that's going to be meaningful. So if let's say somebody makes an announcement and tells you, listen, there's a woman that doesn't have what to eat and uh, doesn't really have a job or is not making enough money and she's about to give birth. And we need to, anyone that can contribute and you say, oh, yeah, yeah, great. I want to contribute. I'm going to give $5. I'm going to give $5. If you actually think that $5 is going to get you to Gan Eden, you have a serious problem. Because unless that's really like your only $5, or like it's like a significant amount of money for you, which in today's world in America, nobody values $5. You can't even get coffee for $5. What's $5 going to do, going to do for a woman that doesn't have any money, any money to eat? What's five dollars going to do for But the problem today is that we are confused. We think that giving a dollar to the homeless guy is going to get us to Ganeden. We think that giving five dollars to a woman who doesn't have money to eat is going to get us to Ganeden. We think that giving a hundred dollars for some Hanukkah party, or even five thousand dollars for some Hanukkah party, is going to help us in any way, shape, or form. So first and foremost, a person that's going to be a worker, 
first thing first, David Melch is telling you, remember, you're going to work, where's the help really coming from? Hashem. All your money is coming from Hashem. First thing first, remember it's coming from Hashem. But also, remember that if you want the hand to shadow yours, you have to use it appropriately. You have to actually pray to Hashem. You have to have a separate prayer to Hashem to actually fulfill a mitzvah of staka. Because if you don't pray to Hashem to fulfill the mitzvah of staka, who says you're going to get it? Maybe you're going to be the guy that gives the five dollars thinking that it's really a big deal. You actually have to have merit to give staka. Even if you give five thousand dollars, if you don't have the merit in Shemaim, it's going to go to pay for the toilet paper for the Biknesset. It's going to go to pay for some uh, fake rabbi that goes to casinos. It's going to go for the Hanukkah party that nobody made a mitzvah as a result of it. Instead, people actually did a, uh, ate without saying thank you to Hashem, without saying a bracha. If you don't have a merit in Shemaim, if you don't ask for Hashem to do you a chesed, do you a favor and give you the merit to actually Give tzedakah, even your work is a waste of time. So first things first, if you have the opportunity to learn Torah, obviously that's amazing. But for most people, this doesn't apply to them. You're going to be in the business world, you're going to be in the regular world, fine. Remember, you're still obligated to learn Torah, and in order for your entire day to be meaningful, because you're not going to spend the entire day learning Torah, you're working. How do you make your entire day meaningful? How do you get... A similar merit, not the same, but a similar merit, like the guy that studied Torah all day. How? You study two hours a day, he studied ten hours a day. How do you get there? Use the money that you made during that job to support Torah. Because if you use the money that you made to support Torah, not five dollars, but you use money to actually really support Torah, you exert yourself to support Torah, that it, your job becomes a mitzvah. It counts as if your entire day now was like learning Torah. Because now you took the money, you obviously paid the necessary bills you have, your rent, your mortgage, your whatever, your uh, bills, whatever bills you are, your electric, your food, paid for your kids' education and so on. But then you took some money and you went and you recruited some of Hashem's children to come back to Him. You... Helped an avrech that doesn't have more than $400 a month to eat. You helped him have some more comfort. You made sure that he has money to eat. And this also reminds me of something that a lot of people have a misunderstanding about. There's a famous Isachar and Zavulun agreement in a, in a Torah. Of how Isachar and Zavulun had an agreement, a famous agreement, where one learned Torah, the other one worked, and the one that worked also learned Torah, but not to the same extent. But he made sure that he, that he actually supported the one that learned Torah. And today, a lot of people think they have the same arrangement. They think they have the same arrangement because they support an avrech. Now, in order for you to have a Issachar and Zvulun agreement, there's two opinions of how it can be. One, in order for it to truly be a Issachar and Zvulun, in order for you to truly have half the uh, merits that he has. So for example, every minute of Torah that he learns, it's mitzvot. 
you want to have those mitzvot also. So let's say, for example, he makes a half a million mitzvot a day, you get a half a million also. In order for it to be 50-50, there's two opinions. One opinion is, you have to pay for all of his bills. Not 500 bucks a month. All of his bills. Whatever his bills are, you have to pay for all of them. If it's 10,000 a month, it's 10,000 a month. If it's 5,000 a month, it's 5,000 a month. Like a lot of people think, if I pay $300 to this avrech, it's Yisachar Zvulun. It's not Yisachar Zvulun. Oh, I pay him $700. He only makes 400 bucks a month from the kolel. I pay him $700. But yeah, but he needs $5,000. Your $700 is helping him, but you're not getting half of his mitzvot, and everybody else that's helping him is not getting anything. So, right. So you have to be the one that frees him from the responsibility of money. So that's the first, that's the first opinion. First opinion is, you have to pay for all of his bills. Second opinion is, is you actually have to give him half of all your money. Meaning, you make 10000 a month, 5000 to him, 5000 to you. You make 100000 a month, 50000 to him, 50000 to you. What if your bill's big? Billion to you, billion to him. That's second opinion. Most hold by the first opinion. Let's work on that first. And then you can only do one of left. Because let's say someone supports, someone makes 100 grand a month, we support 10 of the thing, right? Mm-hmm. We're giving each one 1,000 a month. That's pretty good in Israel. Now, no one gets 1,000 a month. But then, if, if you have to give him half of what you have, you can only support one guy. If he's a serious Tommy yeah, Tacham, you don't need more than one guy. But is the very support uh, 10? Again, I'm not telling you what to do. I'm telling you what, 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 what the sages say. What I'm saying to you is that the people that think that they are getting Isachar's Vulun by giving the guy $1,000 a month, it's really only Isachar's Vulun if $1,000 a month is all of his bills. And I don't know anybody that on Hashem's green earth is living off $1,000 a month with five kids. Not in Israel, not in America, I don't think really in anywhere in the world, except, you know, third world countries. You know, so yes, you're getting mitzvot. It's a hundred percent mitzvot for supporting an avrech for five hundred dollars a month or a hundred dollars a month or five thousand. It's all mitzvot, but it's not yisachar zvulun. We have to put ourselves where we belong. Put ourselves where we belong. Let's not think that we're going to Gan Eden, but in reality, there's a suffix if we're even going to enter it. You know, we don't. That's also the thing. If you don't have the merit of having tzedakah. Someone can go up to Shema and tell him, oh, listen, I gave a lot of tzedakah. No, you didn't give any tzedakah. What tzedakah did you give? No, no, I gave 5,000 to the, to the Bet Knesset Hanukkah party. That's not tzedakah. I gave a card to the rabbi every year. That's a grift. That's not tzedakah. Maybe chesed, but it's not tzedakah. I gave uh, $30,000 to the reform shul. That's actually a sin. Uh, I gave, uh, you know, a, uh, a, I, I gave five dollars to, to the woman that uh, was pregnant. Was, oh, okay, yeah, yeah. It's like okay, so you have five dollars. So here, we're gonna give you back the five dollars. Go to the vending machine. You can buy whatever you want before you enter Gano. That's what you're gonna have if you have this five dollars. You understand what's happening here? Go to the vending machine, buy a Coca-Cola or a Pepsi before you go to Gano. So you have something to drink. That's what you're gonna get. You have to have merit to give stakam, my friends. You have to have merit. And that's the people, people don't understand this. People think that if they give $100 to any guy with a beard, it's chazaku uh, ba'uch. No, my friends. You have to have merit. You have to, have, you know, really you have to give the tzedakah that supports Torah. Has to support Torah. If it's not supporting Torah, it's sefek if it's even a, uh, a mitzvah. Unless it's, you know, poor people and, you know, people don't have money to eat and so on. But if you're giving it to some Hanukkah party or Purim party or any party, it's not... Uh, that's like a, it's a gift. That's like a.
No next question. You finished all Torah? Yesterday I shut off the tape. You guys talked to me for two more hours. It was better than the lecture. Okay, I'm going to pretend like I shut off the camera. No, no, come on. First time I heard this thing. What's up? Well, actually, two. I've heard an assimilationist, apparently this is a sect now, and reconstructionist. Kuflim. Heretics. 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 Yeah, same thing. There's actually, there's actually a, uh, unfortunately, there's also someone, something called a renewal. And uh, they call themselves Orthodox, but in reality they're Reform. And it was actually started by someone that used to be in Chabad. He used to be in Chabad, and then he went off the deep end. He created a talit that's uh, rainbow color, oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, which became very popular amongst the Reform people. And um, he, um, he's, you know, going to suffer for a long time for it. But um, anyway, there's a lot of different sects of, uh, of um, going against Hashem, unfortunately, and very few that are going with Hashem. So we have to try to be on the good side. What's the appropriate way to rebuke? Uh, I mean, is it our, you said it's our place to rebuke. Yeah. I, I'm going to give an example. Um, originally, I first started about this thing. Mm-hmm. One day I went to the beach. And I was like, okay, you know, a couple people there and look, and I just zoned out. I did it, enjoyed the water, and like, well, I think I'm doing a great thing. Prayed in the beach? Thing. That's what you did. The tree. I'm trying to understand what you're saying. Yeah, Pray to the beach. Okay. Guy, he's very, very spiritual. Uh, yeah. Feeling. Feeling, so, right. Okay, I didn't, I didn't know. Fair enough. Okay. But I sent a picture to the rabbi while I was there. Okay. And he said, you should post that on Facebook. And I and I thought about it. I'm like, I'm not going to do that. Because, like, the picture I showed him, you know, I don't have a shirt on. I'm just talking. He goes, what are you doing? He said, go to the beach for the mikvah. So I sent him the picture. But then I thought about it. I'm like, that's one of a handful of things in the whole way to do that blatantly would have been blasphemy to the biggest degree and looked so badly on me. What's right. the appropriate thing to do about that? Get a new rabbi. Well, I'm sure. But, uh, I mean, do we have a burden of obligation to not hinder that rabbi from continuing to... If he's a lamdan, if he's someone that learned Torah and he's considered, a, I guess, to some extent, somebody that's, uh, at least to some extent, a Talmud Chacham, knows some Torah, I... You can't really rebuke him uh, the way you would rebuke somebody that uh, doesn't know anything. You still have to give him some type of honor because he has some Torah that he possesses. Uh, but you could do it in different ways. You could do it with an anonymous letter. You could do it in a uh, asking him, uh, oh, listen, I heard this one rabbi mention this thing about something similar to a story that what you just told me, but obviously don't mention it's your story. What do you think of it? He said, ta 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 He said, it's not allowed. What do you think? And, you know, you could, in essence, uh, give him the rebuke indirectly. You must rebuke your brother, but not come to sin as a result of it. Meaning, yes, you have to rebuke your brother, but don't be a guy that's crossing the line and, and ends up embarrassing him in public. You understand? So there's a way to rebuke different people. In general, you should focus on people that are your circle. Uh, unless, it's if it's a community leader, if it's a rabbi, then usually what you would want to do is you want to have another rabbi approach him. Want to have another rabbi ask him a question or give him a message in the name of another rabbi. Uh, rather than you saying, listen, I don't think what you're doing is right because 
Number one, he's probably not going to listen to you. Um, number two, he's going to find you like a chutzpan. He's going to find you very rude. Um, and uh, number three, it's not necessarily appropriate for a student to rebuke his teacher, even if he was only your teacher for a day. So there's a way to do things. You have to be very careful with rebuke. There's a way. I mean, listen, problem in today is that we got so careful that no one rebukes. So we can't go to that extent. But uh, there's a way to do it. There's a way to do it. There's a, there's a way to fulfill the mitzvah. You're obligated to do it. It's one of the 613 mitzvot. Uh, but um, in general, one of the things that uh, I think is uh, very, very important to say is uh, yesterday I mentioned when somebody asked, asked me a question. Last night I got home. There was already a question on the email that was re- relevant to the shiur. Baruch Hashem, there was one uh, tzaddikah, Ba'alat Shuvah from uh, San Francisco, and she sent me a question. I haven't had a chance to respond to it. So I'll respond to her now because I think maybe somebody else maybe is asking the same question. It's good for a clip anyway um, for people to know. Now, yesterday we mentioned that when someone doesn't have a rav, someone doesn't have a rabbi, there are some of Gdolet Torah, there are some sages that say, even in our generation, if you don't have a rabbi, if you don't make yourself a rabbi, it's better you didn't even do tshuva. Because at least you're going to be ignorant. You're going to make sins out of ignorance. Whereas if you did tshuva, but you don't have a rabbi, you can become a walking chilul Hashem. You don't have anybody leading you in the right direction. You're going to start deciding what this alacha means to you. You're going to decide what this specific thing means to you, which is a problem. It's a very, very serious problem. And this is what happened with the renewal guy. This is what happened with the reform people. This is what happened with modern orthodox, This is, or open orthodox. This is what's happening with a lot of different people are just not following rabbis. They just become their own rabbis. And this is a very serious problem. And to such an extent that you sometimes, you, every time, see... Every time you see somebody getting off the deep end, they start saying things, it's because their opinion, not their rabbis. They don't have a rabbi or they're not listening to him. So some people are saying that it's better off you didn't even do tshuva than actually do tshuva without a rabbi. Now what if the only available rabbi you have locally is a reform rabbi or a conservative rabbi or a renewal? What if that's the only rabbi you have locally? Then what? No one says that your rabbi has to be local. No one says your rabbi has to be local. Your rabbi does not have to be local. Your synagogue doesn't have to be local. If the only shul you have locally is reform, constructionist, reconstructionist, transformer, not transformer, all the stuyot that people create, create, that are against the Shem, the only thing that's next to you is something that's against the Shem, don't go. Not allowed to go. It's better you die and not go to one of these synagogues. Die. Not just not go. Die. And not go to one of these synagogues. You understand what I'm saying here? So if the rabbi there is not really rabbi, it's some goy or some goya or some uh, you know, uh, dog that's a rabbi in this shul, and that's the only local rabbi, he's not a rabbi. Don't have him as a rabbi. Find a new rabbi. If there's nobody local, then find somebody that's distant. My rabbi is in Israel. What, you think I go to Israel every time I have a question? No, but Hashem, Hashem had mercy on us. He created phones. He created Skype. He created text messaging. He created email. It's a million ways to communicate today. No one says your rabbi has to be local. 
So you can have a rabbi. That's this is rabbi. You have a question, you call the rabbi, you text the rabbi, you email the rabbi. That's it. But in reality, you should move. You should move to a place where it has orthodox shul. Now, your local rabbi doesn't necessarily need to be your only rabbi. Most people throughout their religious life are going to have multiple rabbis. You're going to have one rabbi that's going to be your rabbi that is going to teach you Musar. One rabbi is going to teach you Gemara. One rabbi is going to teach you, uh, you know, family purity or, or, or Shlom Bayit. Another rabbi is going to be your go-to guy when you... Alachot. Another rabbi is going to be like your friendly rabbi, your guy that's going to answer the phone at 3 o'clock in the morning when you're down and you're not sure if you want to jump off the bridge or not. You need that rabbi too. So you're going to have different rabbis. The one thing I would recommend though that I see happening constantly is creating a problem for a lot of rabbis more than it is for people is that many rabbis are making the mistake of befriending their students, becoming friends with their students. As a leader, it's the biggest mistake you can possibly make. If you want to be somebody's rabbi, you cannot be their friend. It doesn't necessarily mean that you can't be friendly. You can be friendly, you can invite them to a dinner, you can invite them to an event, but you can't be friends. You can't go on vacation together. Can't say, hey, what's up, buddy? Oh, nothing. What's going on, bro? No, that's not, that's not how you talk to a rabbi. Can't go out for a beer with your rabbi. You want to be a friend? Be a friend. And the reason why is because once you're friends, the respect changes. The respect changes. We learn this from also Pekavod. I think a few weeks ago we learned about this. But also we learned this all the way back from Elchanan. The father of Shmuel, Shmuel Anavi, he used to go to the uh, do the sacrifices four times a year, and each time he would go in a different direction. Same place, same location, but he would go in a different direction. And we see from the prophets also that one of the very big mitzvot that Hashem had at the time of the Bet Hamikdash is that you were not allowed to leave the Bet HaMikdash from the same place you entered. You entered front door, you leave in the back. You entered from the back, you leave from the front. You're never allowed to enter and leave from the same exit. Reason why? So the walls of the Bet HaMikdash don't start looking like the walls of your house. Translation, don't get used to it. Don't get used to the Bet HaMikdash, the Holy of Holies, the house of Hashem Barach, like you got used to your house. You could buy a multi-million dollar mansion, but after a few months, you're used to it. It's your house. It's not your mansion. It's your house. It just becomes regular. You're used to it. Bet HaMikdash is not your house. It's not your house. Your rabbi, don't get used to him. As soon as you start teaching... Treating him like a friend? He's not your rabbi anymore. This is one of the biggest mistakes that I see today with young rabbis and, uh, and young students of theirs. They want to play basketball with them. They want to kick it with them. They want to say what's up to them. They want to be friendly with them. They want to seem cool like them. And that's fine. You could be a mentor, but you're not going to be their rabbi. Mentor is fine. It's just not their rabbi. Mentor is a leader. It's just not their rabbi. 
Why? Because a rabbi, according to Chazal, is someone you have to, the students have to feel like they fear God. Meaning, he says they do. He says not allowed, they don't say no, but why? No, there's no why. No why. I said no. No. The end. This seems to our generation like some type of authoritarian type of mentality, Hitlerish slash Iran. No, no, my friends. This is respect and honor of Tamit Chacham. Honor of Tamit Chacham. Tamit Chacham, Gemara Masech Chagah says, Kulo Ish. A Tamit Chacham is all fire. Mamash fire. You don't see it. A Tamit Chacham, surrounded by fire. Genom can't touch him. Tamit Chacham. You're respecting a rabbi, I'm assuming your rabbi is Tamit Chacham. If your rabbi is a Tamit Tipesh, then he's not your rabbi really. You understand? Tamit Chacham, Kulo Es, of course you're going to be scared of him. He says yes, you say yes. He says no, you say no. You have debate, you're not looking for a rabbi, you're looking for a friend. And this happened to me with a student that I knew wasn't really a student, but nonetheless, he, uh, he's one of, unfortunately, one of the unfortunate victims of this book that came out and this teaching that came out that I mentioned to you guys yesterday where they tell people that are goyim that they're allowed to keep Shabbat. Even though Rambam says a non-Jew that keeps Shabbat, chayav mita. Gets death penalty. Heavenly death penalty. A non-Jew is not allowed to keep Shabbat. Why? Because it's a brit Hashem says it's a covenant between me and you. Not me and everyone. Not me and all the nations. Not me and the Jews and the Noahides. No, no. Me and you. You being Am Yisrael. It's the only verse you need. There's many other proofs. It's the only verse you need that the covenant is only between Hashem and Am Yisrael. No one's allowed to keep Shabbat unless they're a Jew. So when someone says, who calls themselves a rabbi, or a couple of people call themselves rabbis, and they tell people, no, 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 Rambam was wrong, or you misunderstood the Rambam, and you misunderstood this one, and everyone misunderstood except us in this generation, the year 2017, according to the Christians. We understood, no one else understood before us. We gave a chidush to the world. Rabbi Akiva didn't understand. Rabbi Akiva that went up to Shemaim, went up to Shemaim and saw what happens there. He saw angels, he saw what's going on. He saw how things look. He didn't understand, but you, you too, you saw it. You understood. Rambam, that was able to go from place to place without cars, houses, planes, or anything. Country to country, just through Kabbalah. And one of the stories in the book of Rav Mazuz that came out recently, is a Kabbalah, it says, he went from Egypt to a different country and back in three minutes. You're saying, he didn't understand, but you understood from this generation. You understood. He was wrong, you were right. Said that. Let's, when we get out of that dream, we realize it's a problem. But now, they wrote a book that this book is saying that anyone can keep Shabbat, you can do this, you can do that. And unfortunately, what's happening is that many of these people that are supposed to convert and become Jewish eventually decide, wait a minute, if I could just keep whatever I want, what do I need to convert for? Let me just stay and keep whatever I want and not get punished if I don't keep it. So I get to win either way. So what happens? 
One of the things that a non-Jew is not allowed to do, unless he's in the process of converting, he's not allowed to learn the oral Torah. He's not allowed to learn the Gemara. Not allowed. Not allowed. But they said, these two rabbis, say he's allowed. So what is he doing? He's learning Gemara now. So now he comes to me, he says, listen, I have, he's a nice kid too. But he's making a very big mistake. Comes to me, he says, listen, I've been learning Gemara, and, uh, and it says in the notes of Masechet Sanhedrin, I think it was page 59, there's a note, number 10, it says that if the Noahide is learning, uh, but he's, uh, it's only a problem if, a, uh, if he's learning because he's trying to confuse the public, confuse Am Yisrael. I said, no, no, if you actually look at the actual Gemara itself, Rabban Yochanan says, a guy that learns oral Torah, chayav mita, not allowed. That's what the Gemara says. Forget the notes. Gemara says, Rabban Yochanan. Rabban Yochanan was able to revive the dead. But even before that, before I gave him the actual answer, he told me I'm studying Torah, I'm studying this, I'm doing all this. So I said, I asked him, are you looking for an answer? Or are you looking for validation? Because if you were looking for an answer, you already got the answer from all my lectures, or Rav Mizrahi's lectures, that you're not allowed to learn Torah. But it sounds like you are looking for validation. You're looking to get permission to learn Torah. And obviously you don't have permission because we already said it. And the source that you're providing is wrong. You're wrong about the source. And I explained to him the source. So what does he do? He debates me. That's not a student. Nice kid. God bless him. Hopefully he does chuba. Hopefully he converts at the end. But that's the difference between someone who's a student and someone who's a friend. He enjoys my lectures. I enjoy the fact that he gave out a few CDs. Oh Hashem, nice people. But the reality of it is, when you have a Rav, he says yes, you say yes. He says jump, you say how high. That's a Rav. I didn't ask to be anybody's Rav, but you're, you're understanding my point here. There have been many times that I had to do things I didn't really want to do. Due to this arrangement of having a Rav. So the only thing I can suggest to you guys, if you're going to pick somebody to be a Rav, your local Rav, your YouTube Rav, you're this rub or you're that rub. Whoever your rub is going to be, get used to it. Get used to saying yes. Because that's the only way he's going to actually be able to help you. As soon as you start debating him, he's not your rub anymore. Next. So, uh, uh, you were saying about going to the second guy, shall we, you know, uh, for one come after the other door? Yes. It's one of them. It's one of them. I mean, no, you stand in front of us, meaning no, it's actually one of the Pekia Avot. It's one of the Mishnah. Is that um, you have to know who you're dealing with. You have to know who Hashem et Barach is. So this is actually a verse. That verse is, actually comes from the Mishnah. Uh, you have to know that you're standing in front of Hashem, which is technically you're standing in front of Hashem at all times, which is actually part of the reason of why you're not allowed to be a drunk or high uh, because in essence, you're not allowed. You have to realize that Hashem is next to you. So how could you be next to the King of Kings, all drunk and a mess? Even more so if you're in a Bet Knesset. Even more so in a place that's holy, that's a mini Bet Hamikdash. You're not allowed to pray. 
if you're drunk. You're not allowed to pray if you're high. You're not allowed to pray after you smoked weed. You know, you're not allowed to pray after you took a pill of ecstasy. Even though you feel really spiritual, you're not allowed to pray. Your, your, your spiritual state of mind is to'avat Hashem, meaning disgusting to Hashem to such an extent that he killed two people because of it. Who are those two people? Nadav and Avil. Aaron's sons. Aaron's sons, according to Chazal, had potential greater than Aaron and Moses. But they came in front of Hashem in an inappropriate way, Hashem killed them. So, Kalvachomel, needless to say, us coming in front of Hashem in a Bekneset after we just smoked a joint, after we just had a couple of drinks. So, this is something that we need to know. You, to, you know, when you go in front of Hashem, know who you're standing from. Say what? When they have like a Febrangian, like what's a Febrangian? Sit and drink and sit and drink. So you have a, you go, if you go to like a Chabad get together, yeah. the, you know, the discussing Torah, they're, they're sharing thoughts, philosophy, telling stories, singing, and they say it's a mitzvah, they get drunk while you're there. Get drunk? Drunk learning Torah? No, you're not allowed. No such thing. You're not allowed to do it. Having a drink. Having a couple of a drink, a lechaim, it's very different than getting drunk. Getting drunk, you're not learning Torah. It's better off you don't do it. How do they justify it? People have to. Again. You people do it wrong, but most people who do it, they know what they're doing. They said, it's not saying it's a lechaim. They drink bottles. They're using it as a drink as an excuse to get drunk. They're not allowed. Even according to. That's so weird. I go and I look around. Listen, in reality, you learn Torah, you're supposed to do as little as possible other than learning Torah. Because when you're really, really learning Torah, you have to be focused on the gold and diamonds that are in front of you. Not the uh, peanuts and the bamba and the uh, arak and the scotch and the girl and the guy and the this and the that. All that stuff, it's not, that's not what you're there for. You're not there to, to... It's not a social event. It's also... When someone is toiling with Torah, this is what we talked about in Avrech. If someone is going to a you know, shul or to a kolel or yeshiva, and they're just hanging out with their friends, that's not toiling in Torah. That's just whatever, there's Torah in the background. It's like background music, like an elevator. Whatever, it's nice. But it's not, it's not, you're not going to become a Talmud Chacham that way. So those events that they have, and they have a couple of drinks to get people to come, I guess that's their own Kiruv strategy. Um, of getting people to come learn, but if they're not directing them in the right way once they're there, then they become part of the sin. So, uh, I mean, listen, people are using different ways of how to uh, get attract people to uh, the Torah. Unfortunately, um, no one really wants to use the way that Hashem used. What did Hashem do? Scared us to death. That's what works. You know, if you look at a, uh, if you look at um, this book that we talked about yesterday, also, uh, Or Israel uh, actually found another couple of copies. By the way, he was wrong. Where the, the the guy that said it yesterday that this is being published again, he's not. It's not being published. He meant the Hebrew version is being published. Yeah, the Hebrew version you can get for ten dollars, but the English version is no longer in publication of this book by Rabbi Israel Misalant. It's no longer in publication, uh, but you can get it secondhand from a few places. One guy was selling for five hundred dollars on eBay. 
But Baruch Hashem, I found a couple of copies online for uh, like 40-something dollars. Uh, so I ordered them. Um, and uh, so anyone that wants it, I could, uh, you know, you could give me the money, I'll give it to you. Um, but I figured it's like a rare event. It's like finding a, uh, a Tanakh from 3,000 years ago. But anyway, here, Rabbi Yisraeli Salan says something interesting. In page 66, he says the following. It's imperative that a person cleanse himself of corrupt character traits and sanctify himself from the body's impurities. This can be achieved solely by observing the Torah and mitzvot. Okay? Only in this manner can one truly come to comprehend His Great Majesty and tremble in awe over His glorious splendor. So first things first, we're seeing here that in order for us to even get to a point of Avat Hashem, of honoring His glory, we already read yesterday, first stage, you have to be scared to death you're going to be punished. Because if you don't do it, you get punished. Second step is start knowing who you're standing in front of, like Roger said, and you start honoring Hashem's majesty. After that, then you can begin loving Hashem. But how do you get to all of that? How do you get to a point of being scared of sinning, of showing that you're scared of sinning? He said it in this sentence, in the very simple words, said, start doing mitzvot. By actually doing mitzvot, you're showing you're scared. Because if I don't do the mitzvot, then obviously, I'm not scared. If I don't lay tefillin, then I don't think I'm going to get punished for it. If I don't keep Shabbat, then I don't think I'm going to get punished for it. So, in essence, what we're seeing here is something very, very important. Is that the foundation of connection to Hashem is fear. You must be scared. If you're not scared, you have a different God. Because my God, scary. He runs everything. And when you run everything, that means I depend on you. When I depend on you, of course I'm going to fear you. Because you could just pull the plug whenever you feel like it. People are scared of a cop giving him a ticket. People are scared of the IRS possibly auditing them. People are scared that their boss is going to fire them or their friend is going to yell at them. You're scared of people, but you're not scared of the Creator. If you're not scared of the Creator, you don't believe in one. You believe in something else. You have a different God. You know, your God's like a Smurf or something. It's Papa Smurf. It's not God. It's not God. It's not a Shemit Barach. Shemit Barach scary. So the strategy of Kiruv, you have to scare people. Source in the Torah, Hashem Himself gave us the commandments. First commandment, we all died. Second, then He re- revived us, resurrected the dead for the first time. Second commanded, we all died again, revived us again. Then we all told Moshe Rabbeinu, you go talk to Him, and we'll sit here and listen, we'll just do whatever He wants. Why? If He continues talking, we're all going to die. Moshe Rabbeinu says, no, 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 don't worry. Don't be so scared. Hashem is just scaring you so you don't sin. Meaning, even Hashem himself that wrote the book, 
He's the one that wrote the book, not me. I didn't write the book. He didn't ask for permission to write the book. He wrote the book. He says, you need fear in order for you not to sin. Love will not make you not sin. Fear will cause you not to sin. And the foundation of connecting with me is first stop sinning. Stop desecrating my name. Stop telling me it's okay to lay tefillin without my shirt on on the beach. It's not okay. Stop sinning. And then we can start talking. Then you can say, okay, I believe. Then you can say, oh, maybe I'm going to love you one day. But don't tell me you believe in me, you love me, and you don't even, you're not even scared of me. It's impossible. Impossible. Yeah. Yeah, I just said that. Yeah. They all died. They died. Their neshama actually came out. Their nesh- Everybody's neshama was not at a level that they were able to hear Hashem's voice. Only Moshe Rabbeinu was able to hear his voice. So everyone died. Everyone died. Now, also, one of the things that's uh, interesting is that in the Gemara Masechet Shabbat, page 88, uh, it says that when Am Yisrael came to Mount Sinai, even though they were all, by the time they got to Mount Sinai, which is Shavuot that's coming up. Shavuot's coming up is when we got the Torah. Now, we just came out of Egypt. We were on a 49th level of impurity. By the time we got to Mount Sinai, we were actually in the 49th level of purity. We were at the highest level possible. Everyone became a prophet. The entire nation became a prophet. So we were all excited to get the Torah. So Chazal asks, fine, if everybody was so excited to get the Torah then why did Hashem threaten them by taking the mountain and bending it in a way where it covered the entire nation? Where the written says that Am Yisrael was under the mountain, not next to the mountain. Why were they under the mountain? Hashem bent the mountain and made it like a kippah or like a chuppah over Am Yisrael. And then He said to them the following, if you accept my Torah, good. But if you don't, this is where you're going to die. In essence, what he's telling them is that not only do you have to accept the Torah, because if you don't, I'm going to destroy the world, but without my Torah, you can't live anyway. You can't fulfill your purpose anyway. You're already considered dead. So not only would he destroy the world, forget about that, because he could easily pick another nation. With 70 nations, he could pick another one. But the reality is that without the Torah, you're already considered dead. What are you living for? For the money, you can't take it with you. Where are you living? For the house, it stays here. The wife, eventually, your body goes in one uh, grave, her body goes in another grave. Your kids, after they get married, they're probably not even going to call you anymore. Your friends, find a good friend. Find a real one. What are you living for? For what? For what? For the money? For the fame? What? What are you going to live for? You don't have Torah. You don't have, a, you don't have connection to Hashem. You don't have connection to your purpose. Hashem can, already considers you dead. So He says, if you're not going to accept my Torah, you're already dead anyway. 
So Tosfot, so Tosfot says, why did Hashem threaten them? That's not a real question. It's not a real question why did Hashem threaten them. Why is it not a question? Tosfot says the following. Tosfot says, what did you think? He was going to leave the world's destiny to chance? He was going to leave whether the world was going to continue existing or not based on whether they want to or not? What kind of God would that be? That's a human mind thinks like that. Oh, if you want to come, you don't want to, don't come. Oh, you should come to the shore. But if you don't want to, you don't have to. That's a human being mentality. That's not God, my friends. The commandments are not a choice. The Torah is not a choice. It's not a choice. You have to. You get rewarded if you do, but it's punished if you don't. Once you realize that one of the foundational principles of faith, one of the 13 principles of faith, is that there is reward and punishment, you understand that there's no such thing as free choice. We have choice, which is a limited choice. We do good, we get rewarded. We do bad, we get punished. Free choice means you can do whatever you want, like the hippies. One day she's your wife, the next day somebody else is your wife. That's not Torah. That's Sodom and Gomorrah. So Tosfot says, to leave it up to free choice, that's not God. So you have to make sure they understood. Number one, it's not really up to you. Number two, even if it was up to you, you can't survive anyway without my Torah. You're already considered dead anyway. So that's the, also connects with this Mishnah, is that when someone toils in Torah, Hashem takes away the worldly responsibilities, but when someone doesn't, Hashem gives them even more worldly responsibilities. And the reason why is because they have to do something. They have to do something to fulfill some type of purpose in their life. So at least if they're going to have worldly responsibilities, they're going to have some money, hopefully they'll still have a chance of supporting Torah. But if you don't do this and you don't do that, you're already considered dead. Nothing's going to help you. Next. So finish it off with last thing, uh, last announcement. We're thinking about this. Just want to get some feedback from the crowd. Uh, everyone that's watching, watching online, watching uh, now, watching YouTube, all these different channels. Oh Hashem, we have a lot of different places that we're giving out the CDs. People are watching the Shulim. But it seems like the amount of questions that I get every day is getting to a point where it's very, very difficult to maintain. And it seems like a lot of these questions, people want to hear it actually, not just written, but they want to hear me say it. So we're actually thinking about starting a, uh, a live uh, broadcasting of just questions and answers. Like going on, I don't know, Facebook Live or some other venue will try to actually just have, I don't know, a half hour, an hour session, once, twice a week, we'll see what happens. But any session at all, even if it's once a week, where it's just questions and answers. You could write your questions, you could send me your uh, questions live online, and uh, I'll answer them on the spot, Bezal Hashem. Uh, I may do it with uh, Friday together, if we can figure out how to figure out the, the whole camera situation, being in Israel and America. I could do it with uh, someone else. But the point being is that I want to see if there's really a market for it, if people really want 
because it seems like the questions and answers are what people are most interested in. Um, so, if there will be something like that, <coughs> do people want it? It's question number one. And number two, what is the, uh, if we were to do it, it would probably be sometimes in, uh, I would say, in the afternoon, which is a time where everybody works. So, is this even possible? So, anyone that's interested or has any ideas about it can email me uh, and uh, tell me what they think. And uh, anything else comes up, Bezat Hashem will succeed. Also, any communities that are looking to help their uh, congregation to um, do tshuva. Oh, Hashem, we got a shipment of 50,000 CDs recently. He's a double CD, CD number one, CD number two in the uh, package. Anyone that's looking to sponsor them, sponsor them. If you don't have anybody to sponsor them, just call me. I'll send it to you for free. We just got to get people to do tshuva. That's really a tough. It's not a money-making situation. You want a sponsor? You help help people do tshuva. You don't have any money, but you have ambition. You want to help people do tshuva? Contact me. We'll send it to you for free. Just help people do tshuva. Just don't have them sitting on a shelf doing nothing. So, anything else? Baruch Adonai Amen ve'amen.